What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the uh, Drunk Turkey Show. I'm Daniel, and alongside two blues, aka Hyman and Big Blue. <laughs> uh, Big Blue, how you doing? We'll start off with the originator. I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. Just, uh, I had to work last night, so I'm trying to get some rest earlier to have to work again tonight. Dang, man, pulling pulling some some grind in there, my man. Good yeah. good for you though, man. Get the money coming in. Right. How, how you doing? Oh, uh, good man. Just again the heat, one thirteen, baby, one thirteen. Dang, dude, I don't know how you do it out there in that and uh, in, in one hundred thirteen degree weather. I kind of know what, what Jaime feels like now, man, because the AC in my van went out, and I know how, how it feels now when you're in the warehouse. I, I <laughs> dude, my 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 truck AC just went out uh, day for yesterday, so jeez. That's yeah, yeah, that's probably, that's yeah. Gotta keep hydrated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, vehicle problems aside, we got a couple of guests <laughs> for today's <laughs> show. Um, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit of true crime, we're going to be talking a little bit of uh, Idaho with Melissa Jade and Shay. Um, how are you guys doing? We'll start off with you, Melissa. How are you doing, Melissa? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Thank you for having us on. Oh, we're doing pretty good. Not too bad, not too bad. And Shay, how, how about yourself? I'm good, thank you. Just trying to beat the Texas heat. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a, it, it gets pretty hot out of here. Um, what do you call it? Like, I was watching the. Remember, Jaime, we were, I sent you an article that there was this thing going on, and no offense to anybody out there in, in, the, in the Pennsylvania area, but it's there was like a concert. Yeah, in no. the Pittsburgh area. Yeah, wasn't there like a concert, and there was a couple of concert goers that. Yeah, heat stroke or something like that. They they had some heat related injuries. Yeah, the high of seventy nine. I think it was seventy two, man. <laughs> I was like, man, it's a hundred and like fifteen those are, out here. Those are rookie numbers. Nice. Yeah, right. I, I laugh because I was at I was at my aunt's funeral, and they were the mariachis. Right, it's hundred and ten degrees out there, and Ooh. I mean, she got buried next to a tree, so it was a little bit of shade, and they had a tent up. But the mariachis were in full suit, man. Full suit singing out there. And I, I felt bad. Like we kept bringing them waters because it was they were out there for at least an hour Oof. in 110 degree heat. Man, so. that's, that's crazy. I saw so, a video today of an Amazon driver who literally collapsed while delivering packages. And an elderly lady had to like feed him watermelon, pour water over his head, and then finally bring him in. And it was crazy. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he he's it's been getting kind of crazy, you know. It was um, it was kind of, I guess, a mild winter out here. It wasn't too bad, and I, you know, I was a little bit concerned. I was like, man, it wasn't so. It didn't get too cold. I was hoping it wouldn't get that hot this summer, but it sure did. So, Melissa, mm-hmm. what, what, how did you start your channel? Like, where did you were you always interested in true crime? Is that how you got started in YouTube? Yeah, I did a mixture of really unsolved true crime. It's the unsolved that really always piqued my interest with conspiracy, alien, that type of stuff. And so I've always just bounced around. Um, I really didn't focus too much on active cases because, like I said, I preferred the unsolved, bizarre, something not adding up. But I'll stumble upon the active cases when I see that similarity in them. Oh, nice, nice. And Shay, you, are you guys like a, a? I know you guys are on each other's or on her on Melissa's channel often. Are y'all guys? Is that y'all's channel together, or, or is just a a guest often? 
uh, I panel with Melissa. It's her channel. I mod for her, and she welcomes us uh, us mods up anytime we want to talk cases. So she's I followed she's Idaho for during Idaho. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, hello, everybody in the live chat and members. Uh, Anna P comes in with a four ninety nine super chat. Says we're all fighting for it. Have you heard about Paula Thomason cold case in South Carolina? Early similar to uh, LISK. I'd love to know when RH was in South Carolina. Are you guys familiar with that? Uh, are you guys covering the the LISK? Mm-hmm. So, are you familiar with Paula Thomason? I'm actually not. No. Hmm. I haven't heard of this case either. Yeah, me neither. But how, how, how do y'all feel about Rex Huberman's case? Uh, he he's been pretty emphatic that he he didn't commit the crime either. Uh, do y'all? How, how do y'all feel about that case, especially you know compared to Brian Koberger's case? Uh, which one of those two do you feel is a, is a stronger one? And we'll start off with you, Melissa, and then we'll go to you, Shay. Stronger based on what we know so far, I would definitely go with Rex. Um, they had a lot longer to build evidence, even though it wasn't evidence built necessarily against him. It's still evidence that's collected over a long period of time. Um, but that's just based off what we know publicly. You know, like we may turn around with Idaho and they may have a slam dunk. We just don't know that yet. But just based off what we have publicly, I would definitely say the Long Island serial killer. Got you, got you. And Shay, what about you? Where do you stand on, on those two cases? Um, I agree with Melissa. I mean, I feel like the, I feel like that Lisk and what work that they've been able to do on it thus far has a lot more evidence that's gearing to, we can see as the public that is Rex. Um, but I also feel like there's, there could be equally just as much over in Brian Koberger's case that we just haven't seen yet that they're going to keep quiet being how much of a hot topic, you know, media buzz it is. But I do believe that there is quite a bit on list that's more available to the public and seems more solidified at this point. So who do you think is handling their situation better? Uh, New York? I think it's New York, right? Or is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, New York. It's or, Island, or, Nassau County, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or Idaho, you know, one being very much more. Uh, strict as far as with the gag order in Idaho, not putting out a lot of information, in my opinion, has allowed a lot of speculation and misinformation to go out there. And we're not seeing a lot of that when it comes to, to LISC. Uh, which one do you think is the better option in y'all's opinion? And I also want to get Blue and Jaime's um, opinion on it as well, but we'll, we'll start off in a, in a circle here with Melissa and then Shay. What's the better option? Or which one do you think is handling it better? Mm. Or, or if you were in their shoes, which route would you go? See, there's there are two totally different cases. And so I don't think it's fair to necessarily say which one's handling it better because two different scenarios, you can't really determine which one is better, so to speak. But with the Idaho, it's so popular and i'm not saying the long island serial killer isn't but as far as the conspiracy theories and the rumor mill versus with the long island serial killer we don't have that and so mm -hmm. i feel like if you're gonna compare them they're not comparable unless they had very similar circumstances surrounding it so it's not so much like which one's being handled better versus do i think one's not being handled as it should be and you know i i don't think i could say either or so far 
Gotcha. Gotcha. What about you, Shay? Well, I don't think that the Long Island serial killer case was handled well to begin with. Um, that's just mm -hmm. given the prior um, leadership in their ranks in the in the in the police department. I mean, that's kind of well known and is what has gotten to us gotten to where we are now, where you have new leadership that's brought in the FBI and has been able to discover the connections that I think everybody's you know been hoping for answers and justice for. Um, but I think probably if I think somebody who's handling it better, um, oh man, it's so hard. I think Idaho. But let me put it this way. Do you I think, think Idaho. that Idaho? Okay. So, all right. So you think that Idaho is doing it better? You, you prefer the, uh, the route of going with less information. Um, big blue and Jaime, we'll go with you, big blue. Which one do you think? you would do if you were in Idaho? Would you continue to keep it as a secret as possible? Or would you let out some information, loosen up the ring, so to speak, just so that there can be a little bit of a lid on some of the speculation and misinformation that's going out there? We'll start off with you, Big Boo. Yeah, I think, um, I think they can let out a little bit more information to stop all the rumors going around. Um, um, but I think they also have to keep a lot of the information private to be able to give him a fair trial as what they're trying to do. But like they said in the Rex Zimmerman case, they got all the information out there. Will he get a fair trial? And that I think they got more evidence showing that it's him that he did it. So on, on Ryan, it's, there's a little bit of speculation. Uh, the only thing they found was DNA, and then everything else puts him there but not in the house yet. You know I mean? mm -hmm. Not till we get more camera footage, not to where we get more, uh, maybe one of the cameras actually shows a park in front of the house. And I mean, that we don't, we don't have evidence of it yet. So right. I think, I think in, um, if any of them are doing a little bit better, I would say probably, they both had the FBI had to help them. So they, I guess they both didn't do the best job. <laughs> you don't trust the FBI. We get it, but what about you, Jaime? Um, <laughs> what, what about uh, me? What do you think, man? Would you, if you were in Idaho, if you were in charge of that case, would you release some information, keep it as close, quiet? And I also want to follow up question: In the Rex Humoring case, do you think he's going to get a fair trial based on the information that's being spilled out about the case? Or uh, well, when it comes down to Idaho, um, I think they're. I think they're going by the book, man. I think if I was in that situation too, um, you know, I would, I wouldn't want so much information out there, you know, especially like the way the difference between this case in Idaho and Rex is the fact that Rex, I mean, it was years upon years, right? Mm -hmm. Before these cases came up to lie and then they got, you know, DNA and then they made an arrest. So when you ask also that, which one was doing it better, in this case, it will be Idaho just for the fact that it took so long to get evidence against um, uh, Rex, right? Right. Well, that or perhaps Moscow conceded faster because the only way they got Brian Koberger was because of the genetic tree. And the only mm -hmm. way that they could have gotten the genetic tree is if they went to the FBI and said that they have exhausted all of their 
um, you know, regular <clears throat> law enforcement tactics to find a suspect and have no lead. All right. So they yeah. conceded to that fact faster, in yeah. my opinion. No, exactly. That, and that's why I'm saying that the Idaho did it a little bit faster. That's I mean, look how long they, so I think they they handled that a little bit, you know, handled that right, considering that it took so long for Rex to even get um, pointed out, you know what I mean? Arrested. And, um, I'm sorry, I, I forgot your other one, the, the second part. Do you think Rex Humerman gets a fair trial? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. Even though, you know, the there's more transparency in that case, mm-hmm. uh-huh. considering that, you know, Idaho has gag, a gag order, I think he will. I think there's more than enough evidence to even, you know, to convict. All right, all right. So, <clears throat> Melissa, in your opinion, with all the uh, misinformation that's out there, uh, and you, you know, or information and misinformation that's out there in the Idaho court case, uh, which would you think is better, you know, going into trial? A um, perhaps a lot of misinformation that's out there, and you know, maybe some opinions might be uh, in the wrong way, but you know, there's the opportunity of, you know, the proof coming out in this, you know, in in court. See, I'm trying to word this, but I think I'm wording it wrong. So, going into trial, mm-hmm. which would you prefer? Would you prefer that, you know, in the court of public opinion that Ryan Cooper be innocent or guilty? You know, because I know that there's a lot of people that are thinking one way or another, and it seems like there's a strong emotional tie to either side. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of folks are like, "Oh, yeah, this guy's either dead guilty or this guy's either, you know, 100% innocent." Yep. And, you know, I think that although there's some misinformation out there that could allude to reasonable doubt now, I think that that's probably in the best interest of the trial versus going in to trial with a lot of the information out there where Brian Cobert is already, you know, presumed guilty. What are your opinions on that? I hope I asked. So I think what you're asking is, would I rather uh, too much information? Some could be misinformation. Some could be accurate, but we won't know till trial going into trial, like as if I was a juror. Or would I rather nothing and going in without really having any idea? Is that what you're asking? Um, No, no, no. So would you rather have like it be as sealed as it is, but a lot of misinformation and Mm -hmm. going into trial, there's a lot of conversation that Brian Cooper could could be innocent. Or would you rather have that, you know, like right now, nobody thinks Rex Humorin is innocent. I mean, I think it's a double-ended sword, right? It's the lack of them, you know, it's this gag order that's really fueling a lot of the misinformation. And it leaves a lot of room for people to fill in the, the holes themselves, which is dangerous. It's doing a lot of damage, in my opinion. But even if they turned around at this point and released things, I don't think people would accept that either, you know, and that's why it's like, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think I'm pretty open-minded to where I could remain unbiased, but I don't, that's a hard question. Like, it's a really hard question. Um, I guess, I guess the better question would be what's more damning, you know, before trial, you know, misinformation that's out there for the prosecution you know, because it's misinformation that's trying to create reasonable doubt or, um, you know, correct information that is creating a sense of no fair trial for Brian Koberger. Misinformation. So, yeah, me too. I think that if there's misinformation come time to trial, that that can be over 
overtaken once the true evidence improved. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that when we look at the fact that uh, Latow County isn't releasing anything and they're not, you know, releasing the gag order, um, might be because they're okay with misinformation being out there right now. I think they are actually encouraging misinformation being out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you might absolutely be right. I mean, I think they want. Uh, I think because misinformation perhaps could create more of an unbiased um, jury pool if they don't know the true information that's relevant to the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shay, right now, currently, where this you know case stands, wh- where where are you at on your thoughts on Brian Koberger possibly being the person that that committed this crime, or or are you more on the side where? Yeah, I think there's enough information that's out there that makes me question it enough that I don't think he did it, and 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 not not guilty or innocent. I'm talking about just did it. Um, I mean, at this point, I think that he has some involvement in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back to like. You know, everything is circumstantial evidence at this point. Like, we don't have him on video that we know of committing the crime itself. So, to our knowledge, everything is circumstantial evidence. So, I feel like he very plausibly could have done this. Um, The only thing that I feel that gives me, like, a little bit of a holdup, like, coming to court... Is gonna. Oh. I know Anna's a really, really good lawyer, and I am really nervous on when she is going after the officers' training and te- and their abilities and what that they've put in the PCA, and who has been the person to do the analysis of that. That is what makes me nervous. So he could have done everything, but if we didn't have the right people reviewing, signing off on paperwork, that's what technicalities made me nervous on this, just to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is plausible that he did it, and I don't think that he has to actually know the victims to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to, you know, Brian Koberger, um, I personally think that, that the guy did it, and I think he did it on his, on his own, honestly. <laughs> uh, and we'll go into further more of that information, but uh, yeah, I, I do. Now, whether or not they're going to be able to, you know, hook him for the case, that's that's a different story. There are some things like, for instance, like one of the hurdles that I have when it comes to this case is the warrant for his, you know, historical data for his locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it goes based off of his education. And I think it goes also based off the fact that his phone was not connected to a tower during the time of the, cr- the crime, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's enough to pin him to take away his rights. Now, I don't see, uh, you know, I haven't seen Ann Taylor argue that to try to throw out that piece of evidence out of court, but I'm not sure if they're at that part of trial yet. I'm not an attorney. Do you guys know more or less, like, if they, you know, this is the time when attorneys would be trying to exclude or throw out evidence? Yeah, this is the time. And so the I fact mean, that they're not means that it's probably good, right? I would assume. Well, we have the hearing coming up soon. So that mm-hmm. hearing could, you know, sway the judge one way or another. But yeah, I do believe like this is the time where um, 
what is in discovery will be thrown out. There's a lot that even in recent cases that like I've followed, um, uh, for example, um, Alyssa Turney, I was a big advocate for her case finally going to court and her sister actually testified against her father. And there's a lot to that case that was left out determined by the judge and the lawyers that I felt like was very pertinent to get to that where they were in, in their court case. And eventually it was overturned and he can't be tried again or father. So yeah, like going up through this process before court date starts, it's going to be where they're looking at what kind of evidence will be brought in. Um, and then once that has been determined, if they if if they do try to bring that in, then um, the judge would ultimately ask the jury to leave, determine to what point that that has been contaminated to the jury. They could call a mistrial. I mean, there's so many things that could happen here. Like they have, right. like this is the time right now that I feel like is the most important. So seeing the amount of like documents going back and forth from objections um, to, you know, state responses, like it is very peril. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they've never like read these documents before. So they don't know how to like determine that it's part of a natural court case to go through this process. But it's also, I feel like highly charged and emotional because there's so much there that us like as, um, viewers and advocates for wanting like justice like we just don't get to see everything like we're only seeing what we're allowed to in these in these documents so the actual material yeah. evidence we haven't seen right right no 100 uh anna p comes in with a 499 super chat amber heard and calvary house trials are a great example of why public opinion doesn't really matter when evidence is presented thank you so much tuesday for with your 50 dollars super chat we appreciate thank you, you. Jordan with a 199 super chat. Thank you. Happy Monday. And new tease comes on the $5 super chat. Uh, Some of my favorite piece. Thank you. Thank you so much. Or it's not new tease. Nez tease. Nez tea. I'm sorry. Nez uh, tea. Uh, I'm, I'm bad at uh, pronouncing names. I mean, should we, <laughs> should we need to talk about the whole Kim Pam situation. <laughs> That's a perfect example. You started a whole conspiracy with that. Oh, I know, I know. It was horrible. I, and, I actually and like, saw a TikTok video about that, like mm -hmm. breaking down all the different names that you gave. <laughs> <laughs> it's like picking them out of a hat and shit. I, I just, you know, it just happens. You know, I'm just glad that I haven't said the right name for some people. Like, for mm -hmm. instance, mm -hmm. uh, like like Dave. Like, I haven't accidentally said his correct name out there. And so <laughs> that one is the one that worries me. That's why I don't, I, I, I've tried to forget that one. But, um, yeah, no, nah, the uh, yeah, that I started a whole cons conspiracy on. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to Brian Koberger, um, and the Koberger case, uh, when did you guys start getting involved in the case? Was it like right when it happened? Was it a little bit afterwards? Uh, you know, y'all you, you got started then, right after it happened. I think it was like two, three days after first hit. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, same. <laughs> so did y'all have any uh, idea of who may have been the person prior to the arrest of Brian Koberger? 
I always thought it was going to be nobody in the spotlight. All the people that they cycled through, all those names, I said it's going to be somebody that we haven't heard their name. It's going to be someone close who doesn't live in the town, but it's familiar with the town. But it's going to be a name that when they actually arrest him, it's going to be the first time we heard it. So I never went through all of the people of the list. I never thought it was, you know, because I... It it was the main group of people. And so if they had involvement, I think that they would have made an arrest already. And mm-hmm. so I just always thought it was somebody else. And I don't know about Shay. What do you think? <laughs> Shoot. I went through them all. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I this is where I think you learn, you know, from your speculation and what you know it can go through. So yeah, I mean, I, I was interested in learning, like, who all the people were that could be connected to the case or the victims themselves. Um, <laughs> but right after I got, um, you know, right after we had word about Brian, like, I did think it was somebody that wasn't going to be um, connected at the end of it. I, I was kind of like, it didn't feel like that. I did think it was going to be somebody a little bit older. I didn't really go for the incel thing as near as much, but maybe somebody who's a little bit awkward and different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time Brian was like named as the person, then I let everything else go. Um, I, I, but I have the natural questions like everyone else does in the documents and like materials that like we've, we all read the PCA. I mean, I think for one, like I was completely floored by the, the change of time. That was like one of the mm-hmm. biggest ones for me that Dylan had mean? seen because we were told it was like between three and four. And then this after you know why, four mark, you know why police officers do that, right? Why? <laughs> because only the real suspect would have known what time it was. So they yeah. put out a time that's wrong. So that way, if somebody comes out and forward and says that they committed this crime and they say, all right, what time did it happen? 345. All right. You're, you're just trying for clout. Get the hell out of here. Ah, so, it's a trick. It's a tactic. Okay. Well, I was shocked by that. I was like, huh. It bothered me along with them saying that both uh, surviving roommates were originally on the first floor asleep. And then we found out, no, actually, Dylan was on the second floor and was an eyewitness. Yet I was able to make sense of that because I thought maybe they didn't want the killer to know that there was somebody who could eyewitness and ID them potentially. But with that, with the sketchiness with the 911 call and with what Jay was saying collectively, it was like, why are things being so inconsistent? Why are things changing? And also the timeline with Ethan and Zana, for, they weren't able in, I don't know if you remember in the beginning, it was like, where were they during these hours? And it was, it was a piece of the timeline that was missing. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh no, they were there at the party the entire time. So it was just weird how it all unfolded. Yeah. And the DoorDash driver was huge too. I mm. had no idea about the DoorDash driver until that PCA and my jaw hit the floor. I was like, whoa, like, is that a witness? Like, who is this person? So we have a question here. I, I kind of want to ask everybody. I'll start off with Jaime and Blue. Do you guys think that BK is going to be silent the entire trial? Do you think he's going to talk? We'll start off with Jaime. No, nah, I think he's going to stay quiet. I think that's the best thing he could do. I think that's what the lawyers are going to suggest as well. Um, you, oh, I know what Blue's going. I know what Blue's thinking. What's Blue thinking? He, he has to sing to the world. <laughs> he always says the same thing. <laughs> it wasn't me. I told you, man. Like if I was innocent. 
I'd be calling up every news station I can talk to. Well, you know what? You'll be you might be right, you know, because every every single like high profile case, I mean, a lot of these uh, the suspects have been going to understand. So you might yeah. be right. You might be right. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't encourage it, but I mean, I that's you, just he's me. Gotta, he's gonna get on the on the chair and say, "I was out night driving, looking for owls. I was owl watching <laughs> as his alibi." <laughs> <laughs> that was the owls. What about what about you, Melissa? What do you think he's gonna? You think he's gonna come out and talk? I think that Anne is going to. Well, obviously Brian has the ultimate decision, but I think Anne is going to uh, suggest that he wait. Similar to the Letitia trial, Letitia Stout, we didn't find out that she wasn't going to testify until the day where she would testify. So I think Anne is going to wait, see what state's witnesses come forward with see if putting Brian on the stand would be beneficial or if the witnesses are so solid that they're not going to risk it. So I don't think we're going to find out until really in the middle of the trial. What about you, Shay? What do you think? Um, no. no. I don't think he's going to talk. Thank you, Gail, I for don't. your $10 super sticker. I mean, I think they've kind of already put in some words there that that he might be uh, that he has the right to talk, you know, when they was talking about his alibi and, and not giving it, you know, one thing that tells me that there's a good opportunity that he might is that and, and that Ann Taylor may not be this, you know, all great lawyer unless Brian Koberger is really taking over the case is the fact that they they, they submitted that weak, sorry ass alibi. Like, I think it would have been better for Brian Koberger to not have said anything than to say that it was more of a con confession than an alibi. 100%. I'm still shocked by that. Like, what were they thinking? Yeah, like, I mean, we'll, we'll start off with uh, with Big Blue. Big Blue, what, what are your, what do you think is the angle for the alibi? You know, why even put one out if that's what your alibi is? I think pressure is probably what got to him, that they had to put something out by the courts. I know, and then by him not saying anything at all, it was still putting more guilty and innocent towards him. Uh, but I think the the alibi, you know, I mean, like I said earlier, he was, he was out watching at night, and mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I I just don't get why he would put that that alibi. Um, do you do you see an angle there? What was that? Do you see an angle for him basically telling the, everybody that he was in the car? Yeah. Driving around at the time of the night that these incidents occurred, um, I want to say it was more of pressure like, to come up with the alibi, right? But at the same time, him saying it, thinking that it might help, actually, I think uh, for me, it looks like it hurt him. You know, it kind of confirmed some somewhat of the timeline. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's, after that, after him saying that he was out there, he's like, "Oh yeah, I passed it, but I, I didn't stop. I just kept on going or whatever." You know, he can. Pretty much make up a whole story that fits for, for it. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm gonna read this real quick. Avery Shannon comes on with a ten dollars super super chat saying, "My question is, how you three men got two beautiful friends on your panel? P.S. They got their looks from me. Great panel. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Big Blue. I think I think she referenced your your good looks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Obviously. That's <laughs> uh, true. So, what are y'all's thoughts on the alibi? We'll start off with you, Melissa. It, what are, where's the angle? 
what's the point of putting out an alibi like that? I, I, I honestly think that it would have been stronger not to say anything. It's a or great do think, question. Do you think Koberger pulled that pulled that cord? Because no. I don't think I don't think Ann Taylor, you know, if she's as great as people say she is, is, is saying that hey, we need to put this out there. I think that there, she knows what they have, obviously, and she mm-hmm. knows that his car is going to be spot. And this is my opinion again. You know, they. She knows his car is going to be spotted on that footage. She knows that, in my opinion, suspect vehicle one is his car doing those maneuvers as they did in the PCI. She needs to open up that window to accept that, yeah, no, I'm not denying that this is his car, right? We're not denying that. And I think she's trying to jump ahead and establish the 12 times prior that he's seen as a pattern of behavior. So I think she's trying to take that jump and to take the opportunity before they could use that against us. We're going to use it as a long established pattern of behavior. This is his history. This is something he's done. So she already knows what to expect. She already knows what she can and cannot fight. So to us, it's like, oh, wow, well, you kind of just admitted that. But she knows that's inevitable. So in my opinion, she's just trying to control the narrative the best she can ahead of time and she's setting something up uh to come out in trial hmm. yeah yeah i agree with that yeah that, that's true uh, but i want to see the time so i want to see if it's a specific mm-hmm. time that he would go out there or you know if you're going to, or for that drive at all times throughout the day mm-hmm. it ain't a pattern i mean well, like, you know I think Melissa said something that made made a lot of sense there. She said, I think that they know that they have him out in his car. And one thing that I think it is, is I think they have him leaving his apartment complex. There are cameras around that area. So I think they have him leaving the complex. They may not have him or say that that is him in Moscow, but they have him leaving the complex. So if he says that he wasn't driving, that's a big lie, a big negator. Erica asks, and I'm not sure it's not coming out in the on my stream here, but I see it over here on my, on my chat it says that I wanted to clear up something. Cause apparently some people think that we're all only guilty. What is our stance on guilty at the moment? And I, I said it before, I think he's about 80%, you know, I'm about 80% there with the evidence that we have. We don't know all the evidence, obviously that's in this case. And so, you know, would I be able to or, or feel comfortable putting this man to the firing squad today? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, not, not, not quite. Um, and I don't think that you're going to find a jury with the information that they have right now that will, but I tend to think that there's a lot more information that we're not aware of and, uh, and that it's going to be pointing in one direction. And so, um, at the moment, no, and I'm open to change, you know, I've been open to, you know, I don't stick to one narrative, you know, that's how you end up, you know, looking like, you know, those that are still saying that Ron Logan was the bridge guy in the Delphi case. Yeah. You know, that's that's what happens when you stick to a narrative. You know, evidence comes out, even a person says certain things. And, you know, if you stick to your narrative, that is what it is. You know, there was a per- certain points in this case where, you know, I was more 50-50. But as more information has come out and information as to how they've collected the evidence, what it means, uh, I've been leaning more and more towards, yeah, this guy did it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, you know, we find out that there's, you know, uh, 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 
the total lack doesn't uh, of evidence in his car, DNA evidence of his car, ends up meaning some evidence of DNA. You know, my eighty percent is going to jump up pretty high, about twenty points. And yeah. so, <laughs> it, you know, it just kind of depends. If they find the weapon and there's BK's DNA on that weapon too, I think it's going to jump up about twenty points too. Yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel the same. Like, you know, like we were saying we went from 50-50 to like 80, you know, thinking that he's guilty. But, in, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't really matter what we think. You know, it's going to come up to those jurors at the end of the day, you know. And I mean, just look at like, Casey Anthony, who didn't think that, you know, that she was guilty. Mm-hmm. And then what happened with that? Yep. Blue, Big Blue thought she was innocent. Big Blue's always on the... What? Big Blue's always the, the guy that, that always has to be the, the, the different dude. Are you serious? My boy, Blue, you thought Casey Anthony was innocent? No, they're joking. I thought she was, oh, she was, she was the one. <laughs> but, but she's the one. He was trying to. He was trying but to no, no. I, I didn't say. Okay, so we did a Casey Anthony uh, theory. Um, I didn't say she did it by herself. I mean, I'd say. I think it was a drowning incident. I think her dad helped her cover it up. That was my theory because the way the brother explained that the same way they found the body in the bag, tied up, wrapped in a towel, was the same way the dad would would uh, discard the, the, the animals that passed away. Mm-hmm. So that was my theory. I didn't say she did it. She, said she didn't do it, but I'm just saying it could have been a drowning incident, like they said it, it was. I mean. Even if it was that, I mean, there were so many red flags to put someone in jail for a while. And not even that. Yeah, Yeah, I think Florida messed up. I think they should have went for second degree and not first. I think that's what messed them up. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was a crazy case, man. I didn't say she was innocent, but she had some help. Misinformation. You know, I think I think the prosecution in that case kind of was a little bit overconfident. And I got a little bit concerned about the prosecution in this case being a little bit overconfident, being the fact that they wanted to demolish the house pre-trial. You know, I thought that that was something that was definitely a sign of overconfidence. Don't like it. Um, you know, I think that it's a powerful thing to have the jury walk through, you know, that house and see. You know, the layout and the size of the house. You know, I talked to Olivia from Chronicles of Olivia uh, not too long ago. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, I asked her about what she's seen there and things like that. Because, you know, you get a different perspective and a different view from being on scene and on location. Right. You you know, seeing what what the perpetrator was seeing and and getting a feel for for the landscape and, and things of that nature will will, will make, you know, clear th- clear a few things up that you can't tell from pictures. And so, you know, one of the things that she had told me was how small this house was. Yeah. It was three stories and that, and this and that, but you know, in person, it was a very tight home, you know, it wasn't very large at all. And I was like, wow, you know, you can't really see that from there. Yeah. It was apparently pretty small. Yeah, it does. It does. It, It looks pretty big, but apparently, you know, these housing units, they're, you know, rental units, they, they don't have them that big, but it was pretty compact together. And so, uh, you know, that was one thing that she had told me from being there on location. Uh, do you guys plan on going out there? No. No? no. If I live closer, maybe, but no. <laughs> no. Yeah, I we, had we, not, but I it. want to. 
we're, we're thinking yeah. about it if the trial goes after the football season, I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> no, it'd be awesome to go. You know, if you have the opportunity to do it, I would do it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I also cover the, uh, you know, so I have a different YouTube channel. I also have a different um, podcast group where I cover the Steelers. And so I have to cover them. And, and sometimes I go to a couple of the games this year and I'll be out of town already in October. So I was like, man, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they push this back <laughs> till after, you know, hopefully February. Yeah. Maybe perhaps I'll be able to go at that point. I don't um, think it's, it's definitely not happening in October. I'll tell you that. I, mean, I, don't, think, I don't think it is either. If Alabama ever played Idaho, I would definitely be there in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, <clears throat> um, I really did want to go though. I did, I did consider that. I just, but then I was like, I don't know. If I felt like if I did go, it should have been more near trial. But I'm just curious of the area. Like, it's this case has just like been so close to my heart. Like, um. I respect like the people that have been able to go out there and document things. And um, I, I have watched quite a bit of Chronicles of Olivia stuff recently too, just going back to see like what she was able to document while she was there. It's really interesting. One thing to be like watching videos versus like boots on the ground, you know? Oh yeah. 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 100%. We have a $20 super chat. My real question is, do you think Idaho messed up by putting the DP on the table for conviction? Or do you think they're that confident? With the evidence that they had any chance of plea uh we'll go round table we'll start off with you shay and then melissa blue and then hyman so do you guys yeah. think that they messed up by putting the dpa on the table or do you think that's a sign of confidence you want to go first Shay? i don't think that they messed up by putting the death penalty on the table i think that it would be probably highly expected from the community considering the egregiousness of the crime so i don't think that they messed up by it doesn't mean that they're going to actually use it in court we don't know yet i think that's to be determined i think it's hard yeah i think it's hard to determine because we don't know you know like it would be much easier to say it if we had an idea of the level all i keep telling myself is 51 terabytes right Long Island Sierra Clara has eight terabytes. Like that's a lot. Now, granted, not everything is going to be solid, pertinent, you know, information like direct evidence versus it's going to be hours and hours of footage and this and that. But still, that's a lot, a lot. And it's hard because we have this two opposing dueling images, you know, being put out. We have the state who is seeking the death penalty and you know saying that they have this really solid case and then we have the defense who is like you have total lack of dna you have nothing you know you have this that and that's what they're supposed to do you know but because there's that really tight gag order we really don't know which like what it's closer to the state or the defense so i don't know if if going for death penalty was a was a bad move because I have no idea what they have, you know, but I do also have concern that maybe they're too cocky also. And the concern as far as there was so much public demand and pressure to make an arrest, like, did they, this could still be the right guy and they could have jumped the gun too. You know, that could both be true at the same time. So I don't know. 100%. 100%. What about you, big blue and I'm at blue. We'll start off with you. You think it was a mistake or is it confidence? Um, let me review the question one more time. So I was trying to fix my computer because I'm not sure if y'all having the same issues, but 
No, it's not frozen, but the chat's not moving at all on yeah. mine. Yeah, it's not moving in mine either, dude. I had to reload and it brought up a little bit, but I'm looking at it on YouTube and there's a lot of stuff, you know, people posting stuff and I can't bring it up. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I'm stuck a few minutes behind. Uh, mine is stuck on, on the first question that Avery had. <laughs> like, I don't see anything past that. So I think yeah, StreamYard's having some glitches. Yeah, StreamYard's pretty behind because there's like a thousand more comments behind that. So. So um, basically, the question was, do you think that the that it was wrong in the prosecution, like a bad step to ask for the DP, any chance of plea or is that, you know, the fact that they are are asking for the DP, is that a sign of confidence? I think it's a sign of confidence. I think they got enough evidence to say, hey, and I think that's what the families want. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a well, few, at least two I of think, them. Two of them, yeah. I think there's one that didn't didn't want that, but you know, some people want an eye for an eye. So I think they're asking for to try to, you know, do we really want to? Like I, like I always tell people, do we really want to keep these people alive and feed them for the rest of their lives and us waste millions of dollars on them? And they're really bad people. Yeah, no. That the state make their make their mind their choices. We have <laughs> Miss J coming with a five dollar super chat. Lack of DNA is not a lack of blood. Bleach can degrade DNA. Sure. I mean, what are your thoughts on on the DP situation? Um, I don't think they messed up by putting it. I I also think it's a you no. Know, their their confidence is having them. Um, a verdict guilty verdict is pretty high that's why they did it but i think if they didn't um if they didn't put the the death penalty um mm-hmm. i think they would have got a they would have done a plea by now yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean priority. you think if they didn't they would have gotten the plea mm-hmm. interesting you see yeah. i think that there's a better chance that they uh that they were going to do it regardless if the, if the if the case was strong or not, in hopes that he would make a plea. You know, I think it's like a, almost like a scare tactic. Like, mm-hmm. all right, here's the, you know, if, if you get this wrong, we're putting you to death. So, you know, tell us the truth, and you know, we'll spare your life. So, I think it's more of a a thing to, uh, because they can always take it off. They don't necessarily have to go for it. You know what I mean? Right. So, I got some pictures from the. Uh, Early on in this investigation, I kind of just wanted to go over and see a few of them and kind of uh, get your guys' thoughts on a few things. You know, first things first out of this picture is we noticed the silver, um, you know, the silver Range Rover with the price sticker. I mean, um, paper plates on there. Haley mm-hmm. uh, had just purchased this vehicle the day before. Like, don't you think that? Do you guys think that Coverger knew if this was Coverger, right? And he was stalking them or whatever. We don't know. Do you think he knew that that was their vehicle? And if not, that's a pretty big hurdle to go through. You know what I mean? To see a vehicle you've never seen before and then still make entry into it. Does that, does that concern any? Like, mm-hmm. listen, how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, what are your thoughts on that information? Do you think that he was aware? Okay, so that's a great question, and it's something that I've pondered many, many times because from the beginning, it's like. I questioned, did he move to Pullman with the intention to do these kills, you know, to, to work underneath BTK professor? Did he, you know, he has a lot of 
similarities from a few popular serial killers, actually. So it almost looks like, you know, he may have a fascination and mimicking certain things almost. So part of me questioned, well, did he go there with the intention? And and stalking these days isn't the same as back when you're outside the window with the binoculars. You know, you could do social media stalking. But then we have the motions coming out that says that there is absolutely no connection with Brian to the victims. And so it's like, do I believe he could have known that that was Kaylee's car? Yes. If he was actively following on social media, it tells you exactly where you are, what you're doing, your location, what you got, everything. And I'm sure she would have posted that on social media. But with her saying that there is none, it's like, okay. So if he got, went to that house, there would have been unknown vehicles. What would make him go in? You know, like, why would he take that risk of knowing how many people were there? Whose vehicles were they? And that's why I'm really interested in if that means that he had absolutely no connection to the victims. But does that include the two surviving roommates? Yeah, I would assume so. You know, I think that would be a connection through the roommate. I don't think that. And especially roommates that were there during the commission of the crime, I would assume that if they knew Brian Koberger, um, that that would have been, you know, one, I think they would have known who he was a lot earlier and they wouldn't have needed that genetic tree first and foremost to, 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 to eye him. And two, like, you know, the fact that he admitted that he was driving alone, you know, the biggest rumor was that he was supposedly, you know, with, one of the surviving roommates or one of the surviving roommates knew about where his whereabouts were, things of that nature. doesn't seem like that's the case with, with what his alibi is. Uh, you know, I'm going to go through a few of these real quick. Let's see. Let's see. So <clears throat> when it comes to the case, uh, what do you guys think about the, um, the eight hours that it took for the 911 call? Where do y'all feel? And we'll start off with you, Melissa. Where do you feel that um, why it took so long, first and foremost? It's like the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think. Hmm. I'm not one of the people who believes that she shrugged things off and went to sleep. Because if that were the case, and I'm referring to Dylan at least, because if that were the case, I would anticipate that she would have eventually woke up, had to use the restroom, which is right next to, you know, Zana's bedroom or went and got food or she would have gone about her normal day. And that is when I would anticipate her stumbling across the bodies. That is not what happened. What we know happened were friends were summoned for one reason or another prior to 911 being called, which implies that you had some reason to not want to go out for whatever reason. I don't know what that reason was. And so why I can't wrap my head around why something, I don't want to say something, because when I say that, I'm not saying that she had any involvement or anything like that versus was just a really poor judgment call made here where you convinced yourself of something different and then you were just too scared to go out and check and you wanted to wait for somebody. I don't know. But that's one of my biggest issues surrounding this case. And I think that that's really what's fueling a lot of the conspiracy and speculation is that we have this unusual time gap that we don't know what happened. And so it's leaving a lot of room for people to fill in the gaps themselves. 
Jeffrey H comes in with a four ninety nine. I emailed you have an interesting pick of the sliding glass door and unlock mechanism looks gone. Interesting. I'll check that out. I'll check that out. Now they may have pulled it out. Yeah. yeah I think I, saw it. I think it was missing because it did. I also think it had a tape, uh, red tape on there, the little arrow. Right. Right. But I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, aren't the sliding glass doors like one of the easiest to break into? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like lockwise, that's mm -hmm. what I've heard. Big Blue uh, has a sliding glass door to his bedroom. <laughs> no blinds. <laughs> he doesn't lock them. Let's <laughs> see. Yeah, I'm horrible at mathing, but 1056 and 289 likes. Yep, let's yep. get those likes up. Uh, this looks interesting. This looks kind of like it's outside of that uh, second floor. Um, looks like somebody had their hands up here, but that could have been at any time. Yeah, I really could. This is when the state forensics. This is the drone. There's something specific I was looking for in these pictures. That's why I'm going kind of fast. Is it that bedroom that is empty on the first floor? No, no, no. Let me see if I can find them. Well, there's a couple of things. So here's the thing. I think that what do y'all think about the fans shoe print? I think it's, it's I don't think it's really anything. What do y'all think about the Vans shoe print? We'll start off with you, Jaime. Uh, we know you like to wear Vans. What do you think about the Vans? I know that has nothing to do with the case, but I do know you wear Vans. What do you think about the Vans shoe print? Do you think that has likely anything to do with this case? I know it's in the probable cause affidavit, but yeah. what do you think? What are your thoughts? Uh, personally, I think that it's old. That's an old um, shoe print, mm. uh, but but also um, going back to the nine one one call. I mean, supposedly she saw a, a person right dressed in all black, and she was frozen in fear. Apparently, right. Mm -hmm. So you would think after you know she snapped out of it, at least she will make a call, right? Right. So and that's that's where a lot of people don't don't understand is that why so long? Why did it take so long? And that's going to raise a lot of, um, you know, a lot of speculation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if, if it was, even though we already know that due to the injuries that the, the victim sustained, um, probably they wouldn't survive even if the medics were called in time. But, I mean, it would have garnered more evidence in, since it was so fresh instead of 12 hours later and people coming in to the crime scene, including the, the police officers. Right. 100%. You know, I'm looking at this picture here. It seems like there could be some sort of footprint there. You know, when it comes to the vans and knowing what, you know, my theory is on Brian Koberger as far as like, you know, I, I, I think he had a, you know, he's a very intelligent person. He understands and knows how law enforcement would investigate this crime. Uh, I think that he went in there with police style boots. And the reason, mm. because if he stepped in something or left footprints, he would have known that police would have gone in there and they could have been convinced, confused for theirs. That's a really good theory. That is a good theory. And I'd never heard that before, but that's actually really smart thinking. I mean, if, if so, you're, so you're saying that he thought out everything except leaving his phone at home. <laughs> well, the thing so is, about, <laughs> the thing about the phone. Too. He also forgot the sheath. But the thing about the, the phone. Sheath and then the car. Use another car. Jesus. Or hide better. You know, if that's if it, 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 you know what I'm saying? But, 
I the think front the only reason why he left the sheath is because he was interrupted. Mm-hmm. Like I'm the one that believes Kaylee was in her room and came into Ma- Maddie's room. So um, I believe I mean, that. It's possible, you know. That's possible. I mean, it, you know, Dylan and and the probable cause of David states that Dylan states that she thought she heard Kaylee say, "There's somebody here," right? And you know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe she did hear Kaylee say, "Somebody here," and then she walked into Madison's room and you know walked into something. That's quite possible. Um, I, I think that it ended up going down with, with them both in the room there. Um, you think they were in the bed together already? Yeah, yeah. They, they were up all night. They've known each other since they were little kids. You know, I even told the guys, like, before it came out, you know, um, that they were in the same bed. I was like, I told the guys, I was like, hey, you know what? I think these, I think they were in the same bed. I was like, these, these kids were together since, like, they were best friends since they were little. They grew up together. They went to high school together. They were drinking that night. They were on the phone calling uh, Kaylee's ex-boyfriend all night and texting him. You know, I can see girls going to bed together, especially after mm-hmm. a night of drinking. Like they had that. just got carbonara. They were making those calls to Jack. Kaylee was only staying there for that night. I could totally see them passing out together. But why was Murphy in the other room? Murphy why wouldn't he be? I don't, I don't think that's unusual. He had a huge bed to himself. She would have put him in there undisturbed right shut the door what was wrong with him being in that room because like i mean i have a big dog and my dog stayed with me everywhere and but they only had that little bed yeah but he could still sleep on the floor and be with you in your room i don't know if if you go out late at night and you come back at two o'clock in the morning and your dog's asleep in his normal position and you go to sleep somewhere else do you go wake up your dog and bring him Mm mm-hmm I don't think She's so. Like, you know? yeah. I think she may have just left her dog where he was at because it's his room also. You know, it was his room, not yeah. just Kaylee's room. So I, I can see that being the case there, you know, and I think that maybe there's a good possibility that the reason why Kaylee had more injuries is maybe she wasn't a target and it was a surprise to him that she was in there. Interesting. Well, you got yeah. one on your side, Melissa. <laughs> this is one we disagree on. I think. Well, the truth is, we don't know, right? All we can do right. is share our opinions, mm-hmm. and we'll find out. Yeah. You know, and and the fact too is that I, I don't think there's any screams. You know, I know a lot of folks are saying that they they think that there's this all-out brawl. You know, some people have some sort of misconception that Brian Koberger went in there and was going up against four trained you know, uh, UFC fighters or something. Cause they, they, they can't see the fact that somebody can commit a crime like this in nine minutes, you know, missing the context that more than likely two, maybe even three of the persons that were victims here were asleep and all of them were intoxicated more than like, most likely we don't know that for sure. You know, right. he wasn't going in there fighting or going up against people who were alert, armed, ready to go fighting for their lives. And he had a big ass knife with him. That's a pretty big equalizer, if not, but definitely put things in, in, in a different perspective. And a lot of people say that they'll act in a certain way when put in a situation, like for instance, having a, a knife or a gun pulled out in front of you. I can say that I have seen in nine out of 10 people 
when put in a situation where somebody pulls a knife out on them and or a gun, that their reaction isn't what they think that it would be. It's usually frozen shock, fear, you know, run. It's not very likely or it's not very often unless it's a person who's been trained uh, that the initial response is to go attack and fight back somebody who has a, a weapon like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. And so I think that there wasn't any screams. And I think that that is an indication that this was a, a surprise attack uh, by at least two, if not three of the victims. And the coroner stated that it appeared that all of the uh, victims were at least in bed when the attack occurred. What do you guys think about that situation? Do you guys think that everything happened in the bedroom? Do you guys think that maybe perhaps something happened elsewhere? We'll start off with Shay and then we'll go Melissa. And then I want to hear about Hyman <laughs> Blue's thoughts on that as well. Um, so I believe that the perpetrator went upstairs first. So I believe that it was most likely Maddie and Kaylee. I have a feeling Kaylee woke up to what was going on and fought. And then I believe the perpetrator went downstairs, ran into Xana. I believe Xana ran to her room and a fight ensued there. I do believe that Ethan was asleep, may have woken up. But I do believe that Xana was the only one that was probably truly awake during the time of the incident happening. And then the perpetrator left. Now, I do believe what Melissa shared that they would have left, he would have left the, the sliding glass door open the whole time during the crime. So they wouldn't have to touch anything. Yeah. So I do, I do believe that. That's just my theory on it. That makes sense. Yeah. What about you, Melissa? What do you think? I have pretty a close theory to Cheyenne. That's, I think Brian made entry immediately went upstairs, Maddie and Kaylee. I think that they were in the same room. I think it was quick. I think it was quiet. On his and that's when Dylan perceives uh, it is Kaylee and the dog playing. I think that was the act of what was happening. On the way down is when Zana is either going to the kitchen, leaving from the kitchen, something with the DoorDash. That is when her and Brian, or the killer, crosses paths. That's when Dylan hears there's someone in the house. I think Zana naturally would run back to her room where Ethan is. I think Ethan was sleeping at the time. A struggle in, uh, ensued with Zana. That is when Ethan wakes, wakes up, and that's when they fight. And at that point, Brian just killed two possibly three more people than he intended to coming in adrenaline is pumping we know that it was loud enough to hear murphy barking a thud and whimpers from the 50 feet away camera so i think brian really didn't know how much time just passed how loud was that oh crap and so i think he even saw dylan on his way out if dylan really did uh see him i think that he saw her but at that point, he anticipated 911 was most likely already on their way, and he booked it as quick as he could. Then come around 9 a.m., he's sitting there waiting for an alert to go off, for the news, for the radio, for even a knock on the door, and nothing happened. And curiosity was killing him to the point where he decided to go do a drive-by. I don't think he was going back for the sheath. I think he was driving to see what activity was going on at that house, and there was none. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're pretty, pretty on to that. You know, I, I think that even if he went back for the sheath, going back at nine thirty, there's just so much activity that's probably going on around that area at nine o'clock in the morning. It would be extremely risky for him to enter in. Uh, Big Blue, um, where are you on and on your theory as far as, you know, who was first and and and, and how did it occur? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's got to go muted. Well, uh, and Hyman looks like he's muted in a way for a second. I'll, I'll, I'll say what mine is. Mm-hmm. I, I think that he did go in there. You know, my, my theory is that um, this all was because of some sort of like revenge for the area, police, law enforcement, the universities. And, you know, he gets shut down for the first time um, in the spring uh, of 2022 from this area in, in the form of not being, you know, placed in the internship for the for the uh, Pullman Police Department. And the reason I say that is because there's an email on April 22nd where he's thanking the chief, the chief of the Pullman Police Department for their interaction for his, you know, uh, application for internship. And in the probable cause affidavit, it states and indicates that he had applied again in the fall, which wouldn't lead me to believe that he didn't get the, uh, the job in the summer or in the spring. And, you know, after that is where, according, if you believe everything that's on Dateline, uh, is when he purchased a knife off of Amazon. And so, you know, he's gotten to a point where he's used to, you know, he, he had a lot of turmoil in his in his life and, and he turned it around. You know, he was he had weight issues. He lost weight. You know, he had uh, substance abuse issues. He quit that and became a vegan and. Became a PhD student, got his master's from DeSales, was one of two two students that was recommended for the PhD program, and you know he's going to this rural area where he feels that he's probably the big fish in a small pond, and nobody's giving him the time of day, you know he's getting turned down left and right. His teaching assistant job is going to hell, and you know people the the students that he's um, there to to teach are constantly complaining about him, you know all those things are occurring so. In my opinion, you know, I think that that's kind of what led up to him committing this crime. And then you also have the fact that uh, he had that survey that he was communicating with violent offenders about their emotions and feelings during the commission of the crime. I think that added to it. That may have created um, the desire, the firing and the treatment that he felt that he was getting from the area probably created the motive. And... um, you know, those two things mixed, in, in my opinion, you know, that's just my opinion. In fact, you know, boom. Uh, I got to put the disclaimer at the bottom that Brian Kovacar is presumed innocent. Oh. <laughs> so I was waiting for my, something to pop up. I was like, what is going on? And that's no, no. So in my opinion, that's kind of where that's uh, that's at. And I feel that that's where, where when he came into this house, he'd been following it. He's been stalking him for a bit. He walked in the back. He left the back sliding glass door open and went upstairs. I think that Zana saw the back door sliding glass door open and mm-hmm. said, I think somebody's here and turned around and walked out back to her room where Ethan was. And I think that as she entered the room where Ethan was, uh, I think BK was coming down the, uh, uh, the stairway and went behind him. Maybe even saw her walking that way and just followed behind her. And walked in, and Ethan may have been asleep at that point, and not even aware uh, that Santa even said, "I think somebody's here." 
if that was said in the kitchen and he was asleep in the bedroom, you know, that would indicate also why he doesn't have any, uh, there wasn't any DNA underneath fingernails to our knowledge, to our knowledge. you know, their fingernails or any of those things. And, and I would think that if they had that, mm-hmm. that would be in the probable cause affidavit because that is significant it is. evidence against Koberger. It's so hard with the PCA because it's only enough to secure an arrest, not a conviction. But I do understand people's issues when they say if they had something more solid, don't you think that they would have put it in? And part of me says, yes, I would think so. But at the same time, would they like with that latent shoe print that was found during the second round of processing? Is that really all that they have? You know, like, I I don't know. Yeah, I think at that moment, that was all that they had. Mm-hmm. To answer Christy Mack's question, there's like 10% in my mind that there was somebody else involved. Just because when he got arrested, he asked if anybody else was arrested. So, like, that always, that, that question always thought, stayed in my mind. Like, maybe somebody else helped him out. I think it was about his dad. Not yeah, because yeah, his dad right. was involved versus they came in like a wrecking ball throughout the middle of the night. Who knows yeah. if Brian got rid of something along that road trip back. They didn't stop and say, hey, this is what we're doing, right? They had to get a special approval to even go in at that time. Um, yeah. And so I think he just asked because naturally his instinct would be what's going on with my parents type of thing. Like, has anyone else been arrested? Who knows? Like he had, in my opinion, he would have a guilty conscience. And again, what if he discarded something along that path? He could have thought that his dad could get in trouble for something. So I don't, I don't really put too much weight into that, as far as was somebody else involved in the crime per se. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get I get that theory too. So that's what my ten percent weighs in my head. <laughs> but I gotta get going, guys. Nice talking to you. I gotta I gotta go to work. Work. Thank you, Big Blue. Yeah, Christy Matt comes comes in with a five dollar super chat asking Daniel Blue and all. Uh, so Daniel, you're not believing that there's even a chance that it wasn't BK or Brian at all. I mean, is there a chance that it was somebody else? Maybe maybe he had an accomplice. Accomplice, I, I doubt it. But you know, is there a small chance that somebody else could have done this? And you know, the biggest coincidence and unlucky man ever, uh, Brian Cober. I, I guess you know we we don't know all the evidence. You know and I have some questions to like, for instance, you have the phone pings that put Brian Koberger at his apartment complex at one time, I think it was like at 2.44 and then at 2.46 or two minutes later, he's like, you know, half a mile or two miles away or three miles away. And, it, you know, it just wasn't physically possible for him to get there in two minutes, you know, unless he was going 60 miles an hour uninterrupted you know, to have been in those two places. And so that led me to believe that maybe perhaps there was two vehicles that were out there without a front license plate. Cause if they thought they were both Koberger, you know, the unique identifier was the front license plate. So maybe, you know, maybe there's that aspect of it. Um, but the biggest thing for me is the fact that his phone turns off before the, the crime and then it turns on afterwards. And then you count that with the DNA underneath the body of a victim I mean, I get it's touch DNA, but, you know, Ann Taylor did a really good job about describing 
where that DNA was, and it was inside the button of the sheath that was face buttoned down. So that way it would have been protected against all the, because uh, a lot of people ask, like, you know, where's all the blood from the victim if it was underneath the victim? Well, it was face downward. There's a good chance that the other side, that part that was facing upward, is covered in blood. And who's to say that underneath that blood was more of Koberger's DNA? Now, I don't think he intended on leaving that sheath behind. Having to isolate it from the victim himself would be hard, too. You know, and, and a lot of people say, like, how stupid would this guy, he does this perfect thing, and yet, you know, he gets caught because he leaves a sheath behind. Well, I think that there's a difference between pepper, preparation and committing the crime, right? You know, you can prepare for something. In my opinion, there's significantly less stress in preparing for it, you know, making sure you're taping up things or whatever the case you might be doing versus when it comes time to commit the crime and the amount of stress that you're undergoing at that moment. One of the biggest clues, in my opinion, about that is in the Linda Lane footage. In the Linda Lane footage, account, uh, also with the probable cause affidavit, you see a white vehicle go around that apartment complex three times. Mm -hmm. Now, after 4 a.m., which is after the DoorDash delivery is, is received, that's when that vehicle starts to act erratic per that video and the PCA. Now, what happens at 4 the DoorDash is picked up. So, you know, apparently it is a total Xana move for the DoorDash to be happening at late at night. Now, you can't pick your DoorDashers, right? So I would assume that Xana would have known that her house is in a particular weird area and that it would probably be very difficult for DoorDashers, Uber drivers, things of that nature to find that house that aren't, you know, uh, familiar with the home. So I would have suspected uh, that there would have been an indication like a light on whether it's inside and outside of the house now once the DoorDash was received at 4 a.m i think that whatever that indicator was was turned off right now brian Koberger passes by there allegedly and at after four o'clock he ends up doing this weird turnaround at 500 queen road number 52 he then can't even park in front of the house because he attempts to and then he fails and then he goes and does a three-point turn then he comes back and goes all the way around and gets behind the house. So immediately, once it's go time, he's already making mistakes. He's already acting nervous. And he's already doing things um, that would lead you to believe that more mistakes are to come. So I don't find it at all, you know, um, odd that somebody would leave something so important behind, given the severity of this and the stress of the situation. You know, Jaime mentioned before that BTK left back a gun behind yeah. at one of his cases <laughs> he did. One of his, and he had to go back for it. So I, for one, do think that it was a mistake. It wasn't by accident or any of those things. Cr criminals make mistakes, but I will tell you one thing I felt like I got out of the quote unquote alibi that Ann Taylor provided. I don't believe Brian's the DoorDash guy now. <laughs> I think uh -oh. Ann made that pretty clear. <laughs> so I hope that yeah. takes out a theory for some people because she pretty much solidifies that he's not around the house. That's what she's stating. So DoorDash would be. 100%. 100%. There's also uh, theories that apparently that Brian supposedly sent that DoorDash, right? Mm -hmm. like oh, you, yeah. But it, like, even if you do, like you have to pay with something, right? Well, if he wanted to, now, ultimately, it would lead back to him. But if he wanted to get a burner phone 
And then when it comes to, because you could create an account, they're not looking to verify your DoorDash account. So you could put the name under Joe Schmo and then a payment method. You could use a DoorDash gift card or a Jack in the Box gift card. Mm -hmm. Now, ultimately, gift cards are traceable and they it, it would eventually lead back. But it was yeah. interesting because it said that Zana received the DoorDash. It doesn't say she placed it. That doesn't mean she didn't place it. Mm -hmm. uh, it just didn't clarify one way or the other. So we went deep down that rabbit hole of, is it possible? Um, but with the way, I don't think he ever would be the driver, but I did speculate whether he placed it only because it everything happens around 4 a.m. So normally if he was sitting outside that house for 30 plus minutes, waiting to see the activity going on, hyping himself up maybe, then the moment that an unknown vehicle, if he didn't know it was DoorDash, approaches the home, alerts you that at least one, possibly more people are active in that house in a week, why would you choose that moment to gain entry? But I actually think it was you, Daniel, who was saying that, well, who said he was there? Because he was doing maneuvers and he wasn't just sitting right there. He was going in and out of the area. So it's possible that DoorDash came and left before, like, before he even saw that the vehicle was there to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. There's a good, there's a good possibility that Brian Koberger passed by, saw lights on and then passed by, saw the lights off and assumed that it was just somebody awake and that they were ready to go to sleep, mm -hmm. you know, and then had no idea. And, and I honestly think that's much more unlikely. Now I have this picture pulled up. Um, I was going through the pictures that were sent to me that from this case and you know, warning, this is disturbing. I mean, it, if it is what it looks like it is, I, I don't know. But this does look like a mattress. I would assume that if this was one of the mattresses that was part of this important to the case, I don't think you would throw ladders and things on top of it. But if it is, you know, there is some pretty clear indication of what looked like um, some stains under here. And, you know, I do want to highlight the fact that you have a stain up here towards the top of the bed. That would indicate that, you know, whoever may have been attacked here. One, it doesn't look like there's hair all around it. So one could speculate that it was maybe perhaps even maybe in this one. I don't know. Thinking, mm -hmm. I don't see hair, maybe a little bit. I don't see, you can't tell if there was a two here, but it looks like if there's blood here, then there's a good chance that the throat was attacked. And if that ended up being the case, that's, that's could be a reason why we don't hear screams. Wait, hair on, so, on the exterior no, I, there? No, 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 no. I don't see hair. Like, I don't see like a lot of hair. But isn't it like hair? It's right. Up. right. But the stain here is what I'm referring to. I don't see like stain oh, okay. going further out. Like the lines. I would I would have figured okay. that there'd be bigger a bigger stain mark I got you if, if the hair got soaked. Right. So but right. what you can tell is that it, it it does appear that, in my opinion, if this is what it is, I don't even know if this is what it is. It appears you, to be, yeah. You know, if mm -hmm. it is, then one, if that would indicate to me that. Ethan could have been asleep or laying down in bed when he was attacked. And if, if, if the throat was attacked, then that would be an explanation as to why we don't hear screams. But I think the, um, this would just be the mattress. I think like the sheets and comforter and all that would already be taken into evidence. So we might not see some of That's what true. you're describing too. So this could just be where they were talking about like a contained scene, you know, 
the mattresses would have soaked up quite a bit. Also, I would think the floorboards and whatever gravity would take, right? Right. And this is from DailyMail.com. That's scary. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, it, it does go out pretty far, actually, now that I see this. So this could very well be, um, you know, the hair. But it, it definitely does, to me, indicate that a uh, large area that was attacked probably was the throat. And then the uh, right here looks like the midsection or chest, which is something that was described by the coroner. Yes, it was more so in the torso. Mm -hmm. And I've wondered why people think that they didn't do talks on the victims because they did do talks. Yeah, they did. She, Yeah, she just said that she didn't think it would be relevant, relevant to the cause and manner. Correct. Right. But I just still you, see people talking about how they didn't do talks and why don't we have the autopsies? And I'm like, they did do talks. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that stuff will be released until it has gone to court. I, I think a lot of it's going to stay under the gag order. Right, right. And I know for, I know, I don't, let me say this. I if everything that Christy told me was accurate, they, they did do a toxology on, on the victims. Uh, Christy told me that they did. She did tell me that they didn't get that she doesn't know the uh, results of it. They didn't. They didn't tell them the results, but they do know that they did get one. Now, in this image here, it doesn't appear that there is a secondary stain here. That's what I was gonna say. It's like it just seems like it's on one side of the bed. Yeah. Do we know if that's uh, Zana's bed or? Maddie's bed. Yeah. yeah, we don't know which one it yeah. is, but I would assume that if there's only one print or imprint there, that it's probably Xana's. Well, it's it it depends because I've heard a theory of for the people who think that Maddie and Kaylee were not originally in the same bed, that you would see the blood from Maddie with where she lied, and if Kaylee came after um i don't know it sounds i don't know how to say it without it sounding horrible but uh kaylee could have been somewhat over maddie and so it wouldn't be her physical body touching the mattress versus gravity just pulling some blood down hitting the mattress right. so you wouldn't see the full body um outline like what you know what i mean yeah yeah it's that's weird but, yeah, I heard that rumor, too, that the bodies were stacked on top of each other. Yeah, basically. I couldn't find a nice way to say it. I think that was on, I think I saw it on Reddit, too. And then then you have even blood on uh, on some sort of furniture that was inside of the house. Probably like a, like a, like a nightstand kind of thing. Anna's vanity, I think. Yeah. And I'm shocked yeah. that they brought it out like that. You know, they, they, it doesn't appear that they're preserving the evidence mm -hmm. the best way. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. Yeah, like what we like if we go off of some of the early interviews, they said that the reason why they waited so long to start the investigation was because they called in Idaho State Police and forensics. That's what they were waiting for to come in and start investigating the crime scene. Yeah. Hmm. No, it, I just find it weird, you know, that they're just transporting the stuff on the back of a bed of a truck. 
I would think you would get at least a camper or, or a box trailer or something, you know, right. what I mean? or a big van. But out in the you know elements, you know, especially because you see snow. Some sometimes there's snow on, still on top of cars. You know, it can get wet. Or, you know. Hey, I'm it gonna. Really careless, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna do. A a couple of super chats real quick that aren't popping up on StreamYard, but they're popping up on my phone. It says, uh, Cynthia comes in with a $20 super chat. says, Steeler fan and Dan Daniel J, this is a gift for the baby. Thank you so much. We appreciate you, Cynthia. And then we have another $20 uh, super chat from Desiree D saying, thanks for the great show. I have questions about the LL footage. I'm still confused about it. Was Dot the one who bought it and tried to get everyone to publish yeah, it or someone else? Uh, if I missed it at the beginning, sorry. Much love. We have we actually haven't even talked about that yet. We'll we'll get into that here in a few minutes though. Uh, but thank you for your super chat, um, dude. I'm still at the at the super chat. Like the chats haven't moved up on my my uh, my end. At yeah, all. mine either. No, they're not. We have twelve, thirteen hundred folks in the live chat right now. It only shows eight eighty five on the side here for me because Streamyard is like glitchy and going crazy we have a new member uh life love and true crime welcome to the uh the social turkey spot so you know these are and you know the they're encased here in you know the, these sheets that are for protectant to preserve the evidence so i get that aspect but when you look at this this doesn't look well preserved it does not hell no that thing it looks like it's already whatever they put on top of it's kind of rubbing off yeah yeah i mean it's just look at this guy's handling where did this guy come from i hope he wasn't in no look at this guy inside check out the dude the right there look at that right. look at that so where is this stuff going is my question uh evidence room am i where i would have thought for processing for the lab i, I think uh, i think these pictures are going to be hurdles for the prosecution mm -hmm. to jump over yeah and and look at everybody's shoes. Look at that. Look at look at look at all their shoes. If I were to commit a crime, I would be wearing some of these. You would have never known which ones were mine and which ones were these guys. That's true. It's a good point. But yeah. just hauling it in the back of that, it does not seem like the correct protocol that you would follow. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. You would think they they wouldn't have it in an open bed truck. They'd have it in a van of some sort, closed in, so that way. You know, you, it don't rain or something on it. Dude, I moved like four or five times. And out of those four or five times that I moved, it rained on me. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like the weather knows when I'm moving. Mm -hmm. So you expect them to like use a, a box trader or a camper or something. But I guess. I, I guess. There's uh, pain. I guess I, yeah, there's pain. Major pain. Small guy. Yeah. <laughs> what do y'all think about Brian Koberger's size? Did that surprise you guys how big of a man he is? He's a pretty big dude. I'll take him. They'll uh, take him? In relation <laughs> to Dylan with what her height is or just in general? Just in general. I mean, I think that a lot of folks were, you know, uh, and especially when they initially saw just pictures of him, thought he was probably a lot smaller than what he was when he is escorted escorted out with um, different law enforcement officers. He definitely towers over many of them, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, mean oh, I was repeating what you said. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say I wasn't surprised. I had nothing to compare it to, other than 
Dylan's height description, but I'm also one of those people. If you say, what height do you think that person is? I'm going to get it totally wrong too. So I don't put too much weight into that. So I wouldn't say I was surprised. I was just like, oh, yeah, he's a tall guy. I mean, also, I don't know. I just like going back to what Dylan said, right? Like she noticed what he was wearing, his bushy eyebrows, but he never, she never noticed a, a knife. Well, I mean, you know, what I mean, especially open... without a sheath, where are you gonna put it? Right. No, I I get that. I get that one hundred percent. But I mean, you, you open up, and look, I think this is perhaps one of the pictures that Jeffrey yeah. H would say. Yeah. Kind of see where it's. Uh, kind of broken there, but I think if you open the door and you see somebody you're not expecting, a mm -hmm. uh, mask figure, mm -hmm. you might just not you know you just might just stare straight straight at what you're looking at. I don't know if you're going to be looking up and down and processing everything, especially yeah. if that's not what you're expecting. You know, um, the guy in a mask, you know, and I get people are saying, oh, you know, it could be, you know, it's 2020, you know, two at the time and. Masks were still a thing, COVID, yada, 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 right? But, you know, the, the college students had basically uh, revolted against the mask. That's why they had the that sticker gate. That was from the college kids yeah. going up against it. They weren't for it. They were against they it. Yeah, they didn't want it. Yeah. And so I, I thought that was pretty weak. Um, what, what do you guys... What are your thoughts going to be if, if you find out, come to trial, that uh, the surviving victims were messaging each other during the crime? Hmm. And can, okay, let me, ask, let me ask you this. Is it possible for the criminal charges to be brought up? I don't know if you want to press charges against your witness. Though. I mean, no, no, I'm saying like, you know, because they're not reporting uh, a crime, right? If they yeah. knew a crime occurred, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what I would think about that, man. That'd be that'd be crazy. Well, what do, what do y'all think, Melissa? What do you, would y'all? What would y'all? How would that make you guys feel about their testimony? Those things, if if let's just say they even talked about it. Like, did you hear something? What what was that? Like, if they were conversating about what they heard. I think context is extremely important. Like you said, what what were they conversing about? Um, I really don't know how to answer that. It would really be what were what did the messages contain? How much do they know? How much was the messaging back and forth? Was it one simple message of like, yo, did you hear that? You know, like, or... Or was there a continuous back and forth? Was there attempts to contact the other roommates? Like, I would have to know more. But obviously, it doesn't sit right with me. But at the same time, I'm like, she was young. And that doesn't, you know, excuse anything versus can I think that someone young and not in the right state of mind made a stupid decision, which unfortunately, I don't know. I don't know. I think that it'll be a major issue in court. I think there's going to be a lot of major issues in court. I think the fact that friends were summoned whatsoever and walking through that crime scene is going to be a major issue. Mm -hmm. I agree. 
I, I can see that. I can see that that being a um, a huge issue. You know, them waiting until the that time comes across. Now, I've heard rumors. I don't know how true they are, but that they were. I think it was actually JLR also had reported that he had sources that indicated that they were texting each other during the commission of the crime. And so during it, either during or right after. Now, either or if, if that ends up being the case, do you guys find it hard to believe that if they were texting each other, that they could have texted maybe somebody else outside of the house? I don't I wouldn't be surprised if someone once we found out friends were summoned, once we know there's that eight hour time period, I don't think it's implausible whatsoever to believe that someone outside of that house knew something. It may not known what it was or the magnitude, but knew something. Especially even if it was right before nine one one. Once friends were summoned, how um impossible is it to believe that someone would have sent a text out who sent a text out who you know and it ping-ponged around that wouldn't surprise me whatsoever especially if within that eight hour period she's sitting there she's stressing out she's probably going to be texting many people now that again it circles me back around to the context of the messages are what's important what was stated within the messages mm-hmm. got you got you yeah because i think that maybe perhaps there was some messaging during that time. You know, even Christy told me that she had heard, and she didn't tell me exactly who she heard it from, but she had said that she had heard that supposedly Dylan had called out, and she just, she wasn't sure if it was audible or if it was over the phone or text message, but she had called down to the victims. She wasn't sure how true it was either. She didn't hear it from the police because I would have assumed that she would have been more confident about his validity if it was from the police department. And so I'm not sure who she heard that from. If that, you know, maybe it was from the grapevine through, um, you know, she was in conversations with a lot of, of Kaylee's friends. Maybe one of Kaylee's friends knew Dylan and that was the rumor coming out of Dylan's party. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. But that she had apparently called out and she had looked at the phone records and that the phone records didn't indicate that it was a, it was a, a verbal phone call. It could have been a text message or it could have been just, you know, walking out and, and yelling. But if if the surviving roommates did text their friends at night or each other, you know, during the commission or shortly after the commission of the crime, uh, you know, hey, did you hear that? Did something happen or whatever the case may be? I don't find it impossible that they would have texted other people outside of the house like, hey, we just heard some crazy stuff. And I think that could be the source of what a lot of people started hearing as far as rumors Mm -hmm. early in the morning when people started waking up. I agree with that. You know, I, I can see those two things being true and real and, and, and those rumors starting to go crazy, crazy. And especially in a small town where one, if that is true, right. Then you have, you have information that is spreading before police or news media can even get out there and verify the information. And so who knows how wild those stories could have gotten. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you have to get going soon. Do you have any final words or anything before you you leave? Um, I think at this point there's going to be enough hurdles on both sides for the prosecution and for the defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most of them are going to be from the pr- prosecution standpoint. It's going to be, you know, the the evidence, you know, uh, the containment and all that stuff, or how they they processed all that stuff. 
you know, also yeah. about um, maybe even how they obtained the search warrants. Right. You know? Um, you know, on the defense side with Brian, it's going to be DNA, obviously, and who knows what's on those 51 terabytes, you know? Right. And, mm-hmm. and then plus not, plus the alibi that he, had, that he has, you know, that he put out there. Those are just those are few many on both sides. But um, at this mm-hmm. point, I'm still at 80, 80% that he's, um, that he's um, um, guilty of this crime. Um, there is that 1%, 2%, that, 1% that he's not, 1% that there was an accomplice. Gotcha. So you're, yeah. you're, you're there, you're there, but almost there, almost there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate um, you coming, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, thanks for having me. Thank you, uh, uh, Melissa Shea. Thank you, Jamie. <clears throat> um, hopefully we can you, get honey. together again mm-hmm. and, and, and do it again, all over again. It was very nice meeting yeah. you. Likewise, likewise. Y'all take care. You too. Thank you, Jaime. You have Thank a good you. one. Too, so man. we had a we had a uh, super chat earlier referencing uh, Linda Lane and was dot responsible of Linda Lane. I, I think you guys probably have a little bit more of an idea about that whole Linda Lane footage of dot situation. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit oh. <laughs> uh, about it. Um, do you guys mm-hmm. think that Linda Lane and Dot are coming from the same source? Mm, yes not not one person the same circle yes the same circle Mm, the same circle that may not have pre-existed prior to this case but at some point came together and now are working together if that's very confusing i apologize no it's not um so you think that so I, i was reached out by somebody named or that goes by the name of Claire Mack and that sent me some information. So do you think that Claire Mack and the person that was claiming to be dot, because there's supposedly a real person that is out there that dot is supposedly claiming to be. Yes. Uh, and so do you think that those two people, the impersonator dot and Claire Mack are in the same circle? I, I think Claire and Amber are in the same circle. I think um, Kim and Dot are in the same circle. And I think these two circles somehow overlap. Now, whether they're the same circle itself, I do not know. If they've just come together and started to overlap, I don't know. But I see these two circles and they're somewhat crossing one another. Got you. And so you, when you say Kim, are you referring to WSU mom, Kim? Mm-hmm. Okay. Just making sure, making sure that way everybody, yeah. everybody's on the same page. Now, um, do you think that Kim and Dot have been working together or have known each other this entire time? Whether they've known each other this entire time or more recently, I don't, I don't know. But what I do believe is that they know each other now. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've i talked to, to Kim in the past, and I haven't really talked to her recently, uh, especially since, like, I, I've never said that she's lying or any of those things, but I just don't necessarily follow the rumors that she's um, been told. And I say that they're rumors because none of the information, and we, we've said it multiple times, uh, I've even brought out screenshots. In fact, you know, I'll do it again here in a minute. But um 
we have stated multiple times that um oh there it is and the few conversations that we've had with kim and this was referencing the last time we've had her here and this is in the comment section what she has told us is she got an alert to stay in shelter while in pullman around 5 p.m she called her daughter who said she was aware of it and had been since the morning later as info comes out she finds out that 911 call came in at noon she questioned her daughter about the time and that's when her daughter said maybe 10 30. i've never stated that what she is saying is accurate just that she is who she says she is mm -hmm. and that this is what she's heard i do want to emphasize her that the info although it comes from the area does not come from anyone directly uh, you know her info comes from according to her her daughter who got it from a friend of hers who got it from that person's boyfriend who have, may have heard it from somebody close to the Pi-Fi's. There's a lot of connections there mm -hmm. before it gets to Kim. Yep. Right. And so we wanted to emphasize that what she is saying was the rumors. Now, what we wanted to talk about was what she may have known firsthand, which was her daughter said she was aware maybe around 1030 in the morning. So that was the part that we're like, all right, what does that mean? Because that is closer. Like her daughter actually knew. So, was, okay. There could be some truth here. We find out from the probable cause affidavit that other people were, in, you know, summoned to the house prior to the 911 tape, you know, and given how many people this story went through before it got to Kim, even her story of multiple people being there, there was multiple people there. There was a door dasher at four and then there was allegedly Brian Koberger. So, you know, by the time it gets to two people and somebody saying, hey, there was somebody outside, somebody inside, now, who's to say that? that story didn't turn into five people outside. And that was one of the things that we tried to emphasize. But I will say this. Early on in our conversation, she never mentioned Dot or Dot's story to me. She never mentioned a lot of things that she eventually mentioned down the line, correct? Correct. But I think that she would mention everything. She was like, boom. She would, like, especially early on when we first started talking mm -hmm. Uh, articles that were coming in of people that were passing away uh, from overdoses and things of that nature from the area issues and, and things that were coming, you know, news articles. It was a bunch of those type of things that she was constantly sent me. And whenever she heard a rumor, she would come forward and say, hey, I heard this. I heard that. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to believe that at that point. Oh, man, she didn't she wasn't either aware of Dot or hadn't heard Dot's story yet. Well, I had heard that there was a call between and this again i can't verify that this is what i literally heard um that mm -hmm. there was a call between dot kim and another creator um now i don't know at what point dot and kim may have crossed past if any if you know that's to say if that's true i wasn't on that call right. so i don't know um and it may only be more recently when dot popped up that that may you know that relationship may have started like hey you're somebody else who's saying something that is similar to what i'm saying type of deal i don't know it's just something i've heard that. and i think it's telling when it's always the same few names that pop up consistently with a certain narrative that strikes my interest and i always side eye that type of stuff well i'll say this that that kim is very active like for instance when mm -hmm. dave came forward to me uh, she was almost a little pushy about you know, wanting to talk to Dave or help Dave out if he needs anything. In my opinion, she was trying to kind of figure out who he was type of stuff. So I wouldn't put it past, you know, her if 
like she has communication with certain creators and those creators have communication with dot that they would have linked up through that avenue that that sounds plausible to me mm-hmm. what i'm saying is i don't think that it was always the case because mm-hmm. i think i would have heard i would have heard that you know as as open as she was to me in the beginning you know like i said she's she's not as open as she was we still have a uh, respectful relationship she understands that i don't really necessarily buy the information uh, mm-hmm. that she was told she also understands that i don't necessarily believe that she's a liar or any of those things i just don't think i think that the the telephone game that she was playing created a pretty exaggerated story is there some truth there i think that there is but i don't think it's all truth you know Two yeah. things can be right at the same time. Somebody can be who they are and somebody can have information and that information cannot be 100% accurate too. Mm-hmm. Well, my now, issue I, always was just repeating it as fact, you know, like it, it's right. just because from all of the things I heard, it was not, this is what I heard or this is what I believe happened versus this is what happened. Like, no, we need people to be outraged X, Y, and Z. But when you get down to it, have you ever seen anything with your actual eyes? Once she said no, that's that. You know, that doesn't mean that it's not possible that it's true. Who knows? There's a possibility that every single thing she said is true, but we don't know and we can't state it as fact. We can't rely on that information. Right. No, I agree with you. I agree with you 100% on that aspect. And that's why, like, for instance, you know, when we went through our our process, like, we didn't go into a lot of the great details of, you know, the information that she claimed that she had had about the you know the injuries and things of that nature. You know, we tried to specifically stay around. All right. 1030. What was your daughter told and by who? And then, you know, once it got to a point where we started to see a little bit of a pattern of how everything kind of circles around the same sort of people or mm-hmm. person, we, we kind of were like, all right, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but, you know, it's kind of, I just don't think it's, she's as close as she thinks she is to the case. I think there was a little nugget of something that she was told. And I think there's a good chance that nugget is legitimate. And that nugget started to roll and roll and roll. And as time went on, it started to, it was a sticky nugget. And it started to collect whatever <laughs> it rolled over. And it just kept building and building and building. And, and that's what I think is most telling is, If this was always the truth, the truth doesn't change. The truth always remains constant. So before anybody, if Emma Bailey, right, and I don't like throwing out her name, but let's just say Emma Bailey, right, because she's been involved in in a lot of these rumors. If Mm -hmm. she was always involved, Kim would have known about her prior to anybody on YouTube finding out about her. And she would have been saying this name. Like, you guys don't know her, but listen, this person has involvement. But it's not until... The, the narratives that are coming out publicly that it's like, yes, I know that person too, you know, and, and this is, they're connected in this story and my twice removed cousin over here who was dating this guy, you know, and it's like, how is it that the story is evolving more and more? So I think that it could be based off of a little truth. And I think that truth is, is that people had heard that something happened prior to 911 being called. How is that such a far stretch? Friends were summoned. If one of those friends even sent one text out, that text, you know, that whoever received it sent another text out, bam, that's hearing about it prior to 911 being called. Now, where it went from A through Z without going through 
speed why i don't i don't know how we get to all that um those yeah. are some major jumps no 100 percent, 100 percent. and so um yeah you know i i understand as well you know i, I get what you're saying and you know, I, I've always thought when it came to Kim, it was she was just somebody who was super invested in the area because her kids attended college there and was following every single rabbit hole that came across and uh, maybe perhaps confused what she's following and believing with what she heard. You know, that was kind of my my feeling about it. And even with Dave, I felt that, you know, I think that in his situation, I think he's blending some days together to be honest with you, mm -hmm. you know, and I've, met, I've said this a couple of times, you know, when it comes to Dave, he wasn't talking about what he knew, you know, November 14th or December 14th or January 14th. It wasn't until late April where he started coming out and talking about what he'd known. And he was thinking about what had occurred six months earlier about specific days. And one thing that, that he said was, and it wasn't on mine, it was on TNT was that he called in, to to work that day and i was like you know i thought to myself i was like well if he called in at 9 30 in the morning one you know, wouldn't your employee or employer ask like what are you talking about you know look it up quadruple homicide on king road hey there's nothing here there's absolutely nothing like are you sure this happened and two he said that he had to be at work at 9 30 because they opened up at 10 30. i asked him where he worked when I looked it up on Sundays, they don't open until 1130. So he would have had to have been there at 1030. On Mondays is when they open up at 1030 and he would have had to have been there at 930. And so that's why I thought perhaps, you know, those days are, are blending together. And I don't think he's doing anything on purpose. I think, you know, more more than anyone, I think he's telling the truth about a lot of stuff. You know, and and I'm OK sharing like I have an interview with him. I'll share it with you guys so that you guys can. Ooh verify it and verify you know how honest you think he is and you know he he's a guy that in my opinion and you know, he lost his friend which was not related to the you know the ido 04 um he lost his friend and and he got kind of mixed up in the whole true crime stuff because he was um researching about his friend's case you get what i'm saying and so it is what it, you know. It is what it is, and I think their their stories have created a lot, you mm. know. But I, I don't think they're without some sort of information being accurate, and I do think That's that perhaps, possible. yeah, people were aware of something early that morning, you know. Even even the drug aspect, right? The possible overdose stuff. Mm -hmm. Even Christy heard that. Yeah. Well, that kind of goes back into friends may have hearing something. Listen, if you were a college age student, right? And you were living mm -hmm. that type of lifestyle and you heard that these kids just died, would your first assumption be a quadruple homicide with a K-Barcel knife? Or would you, would your mind go to something more rational? Like, well, did they OD'd? Were they given a bad batch or something? Could, you know, this or that. I think that they heard something had happened, but they didn't know the specifics. And just like we all do, we fill in the gaps with what makes the most sense to us at the time. And I think the possibility of an OD, the same way Chrissy heard that they were, that Kaylee was shot, right? Pretty early yeah. on. Um, it was 
all of those things make more sense than automatically going to someone broke in and killed them all with a knife. I think that it's just something that went around because they just knew or heard that they passed and all it takes is one person to say, well, I heard it's this, you know, and bam, 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 and it plays telephone. Yeah, 100%. This is actually the picture that Jeffrey H. had sent me. He was mm. in uh, the super This looks different than the other one that we had looked at. This looks like the yeah. top part was they're taken off. spraying on. something. Yeah, yeah. I think they're trying to get DNA and stuff out of underneath of it. It's interesting, though. That is Thank really you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeffrey. So, yeah. Thanks, <clears throat> So I know you guys are aren't sure about guilt or innocence when it comes to Brian Cooper. What is the biggest piece of evidence or information that's out there that leads you to believe maybe Brian Kohlberger isn't the guy? Mm. If any. Me? Oh man. <laughs> Put you on the spot. That he isn't the guy. I've had a hard time thinking one person did it, even though I know it's possible. Mm -hmm. But after Brian was named as the person that did it, and what I've been told, not obviously haven't heard much from his parents, it made more sense to me how he could do this solo, um, opposed to having two people. So I've always been kind of stuck on just him being the sole person in the time frame of it. I, I understand it's possible but that's a lot of adrenaline and very quick because you leave two people alive so if he didn't take everybody out then he had given himself a time limit to be there right like that's the only way i could think of it so that's just been where i've been stuck on it with him melissa is there anything that stands out in this case that makes you think that maybe perhaps somebody else committed this crime so far with what we know publicly, I have not seen any evidence that points in the direction that somebody other than Brian likely committed the crime. That doesn't mean that it's not possible, but so far I've only seen evidence that points towards Brian. Uh, see, well, at the same time that I don't think it points in any one, any one specific person's direction, I think that the holes, though, causes that reasonable doubt that something's like I think that it's likely Brian but there's something that doesn't quite fit here and I don't think that that's necessarily another person I don't think anybody else was involved but I think we're gonna get thrown something that none of us are gonna expect in the courtroom mm -hmm. but I don't See, it's not so much is there one thing I could think of that points to Brian's innocent versus there are things that don't add up while still acknowledging that there's evidence against Brian, if that makes sense. Right, 100%. You know, for me, I think the only thing that kind of makes me question, you know, is there something else, you know, going on, obviously, is the eight-hour gap, you know, from the surviving roommates. Is there a reason behind it? Uh, you know, that that would, you know, be in favor of Brian Koberger. Um, you know, the the fact that there are certain things that it appears that the defense is making it appear that the prosecution is refusing to give. Right. Um, you also have the Brady Giglio type of stuff that they had found, whatever that is. We're not 100 percent sure. Um, you know, to me, I think that maybe perhaps 
you know, it not being Brian Koberger and saying that, because I was thinking maybe there's there's a lack of DNA in the in, in the house of Brian Koberger. The only DNA is in the sheath. That's a little weird when you have a quadruple homicide with a knife involved. That's a personal weapon. But at the end of the day, somebody committed that crime with just a knife, and you know, and the victims didn't get that person's DNA under their fingernails, from to our knowledge. But you also have the cigarette bud that the process that that law enforcement went and grasped um, somebody uh, without their knowing. And you know, I think the defense is going to try to utilize that as like, why did you give this person the Brian Cobra treatment? Was it because you know, and by what I mean by that is like, take his trash without knowledge. Uh, was that because he re, this person refused to give up a sample of their DNA? Or was it because you didn't want to alert them like you did with Coburger? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because there's only one or two reasons that they would have done yeah, that. Yeah, that's a great point. Maybe and, they didn't even try to get it directly from him versus they went about it sneakily. Right. And why would they do that? I mean, if they did that to Brian Koberger, they did it sneakily, probably because they had high suspicion that he was the guy. Mm-hmm. They have high suspicion of somebody else. That's a great point. So those are the those are the aspects that I can say, all right, is it possible that somebody else did this? You know, and you know, that's the only thing that I can logically think of. But it's just so hard to overcome the other hurdles there. As far as, you know, his phone being off, the DNA on the sheet, the, the no front license plate, um, you know, his admitting that he was in his car driving around that night. Like all those things are hard to overcome. Yeah. 100 percent. Um, you know, do you think that. What do you think would be needed for it to be a slam dunk case? The, the weapon? Mm-mm. Confession? Mm hmm. They're one of the victims, DNA and Brian's. Well, I mean, obviously the weapon would be great. You know, a confession would be great. Yeah, both of those would equate a slam dunk, but I don't anticipate either of those. What would hmm. what would be great? I'm not as surprised if Brian's or the killer's uh, DNA is not in their house. I am more surprised that none of those four victims' DNA would be in his car or apartment. That is strange to me. So I think what we need is one, at least one of those victims' DNA in his car. Hmm. That would be pretty concrete, in my opinion. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. I think having their their DNA on him somewhere would be, be slam dunk. What do you guys think he was doing on Nevada Street for nine minutes before he took off to uh, took off to Moscow? Hmm. You want to go, Shay? I don't. You go first. <laughs> I don't know. My, I'm more of like what was happening afterwards. That gap of time, like, just completely gets mm-hmm. me. I want to know if he has a hidey hole somewhere, because that would be a slam dunk for me, Daniel. If you ask me, it would be if you found the hidey hole and you found the the weapon and everything there, it would be. Slam dunk. There you go. That that definitely would be would be. I I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, not surprised. I wouldn't if they found that. That definitely would be a a slam dunk. Also, especially if it was in the area where his phone went off 
You know what I'm saying? Where they have his, him ping dead in a certain area. They find mm-hmm. it in that area. I think that's pretty solid. Um, yeah. But even if they do, we won't know. I mean, they're going to keep everything quiet right now. Yep. You did a live about this yesterday, right? I did. Okay. I did. Yes. All right. So, I'll give you guys my my thoughts on it as well, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought first. Uh, so, Melissa, what do you think about this area? Nevada Street is this? In... Is that where the police the police station is in view? Uh, I think WSU police station is somewhere over here, but yeah, it's somewhere around here. So this is in this is in Washington. This is in Pullman, Washington. Yeah. What was this he is, doing on the so Street? The affidavit states that. Um, which page? I was didn't it get on? to like finish seven? your live. Sorry, I wasn't feeling very well yesterday. Oh no, it's fine. It's fine. Um, the seven and thirteen. Was it on thirteen? All right, no, it was, it was on eleven. Let me find it. Let me find it. So basically what it was saying was that at 2.40 something in the morning, he uh, is seen traveling um, off of Northeast, off of Stadium Way, heading north on Southeast Nevada right. Street. Right. And then at 2.53, he's heading southbound or something like that towards SR 270, and giving him about 90 minutes of. Um, oh, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, I see it's right here. So right here goes finally. So it says um, footage off of uh, Washington State University WS campus in Pullman, Washington, review that a video indicated that at approximately 2.44, a white sedan consistent with the description of the white Elantra suspect vehicle one, which had no front license plate. That was the unique identifier in that situation, was observed on WSU surveillance cameras traveling north on southeast Nevada Street at Northeast Stadium Way at approximately 2.53 a.m. The white sedan consistent with the vehicle was observed traveling southeast on Nevada Street. So there's about a nine minute area. Now, to me, I know there's been a lot of questions like, was he traveling on this side of Stadium Way? For me to say it was traveling northbound at Stadium Way leads me to believe that it's north of Stadium Way, which is this red arrow. Right. So what would he be doing? I think that that WSU, you know, I'll look it up real quick. So I'm accurate. That's way over here. Probably a decent amount, yeah. Yeah, it's a good distance away. If you're going up Stadium Way, you could get there. Or this back road. If this was the area. So what do y'all think he was what, what do y'all think he was doing over here? I think it's important. I w- hmm. Where was his storage unit at? That was at his apartment complex. Where's his apartment complex in correlation with this? Just curiosity. Right here. It's pretty north. Pretty so north. Okay. Yeah, I think it's about two miles away. Hmm. Which is makes it difficult to get there in two minutes. Okay. So, so I'll tell you what my theory is. Give us your theory, because I haven't looked into this too much, but it's a great question. Yeah, you're going to send me down another rabbit hole. Thanks. 
<laughs> the Office of Academic Engagement. Is oh, look where, at that. You got a little pick up, too. Yeah, right here. Perfect. Office of Academic Engagement, I think, is where he went. This is where um, student employees have offices and can go and do their studies and things. My opinion is Brian Cover was attempting to commit the perfect crime. There are certain things you're going to have to do. You know, one thing that kind of makes me believe that is when he left the sliding glass door open, right? Mm -hmm. We have Christy told me that that was one of the things that they suspected happened. I found a press conference with Fry where he said that the glass sliding, the sliding glass door in the back was still open when they arrived. And so it makes me believe that it was open the entire time. And the reason that Christy had mentioned was because that she stated police felt that he wanted to touch as little as possible. So that way it would give him the, le uh, the least chance of leaving DNA behind. Mm -hmm. And then you find this weird ass route that he takes after the fact. Right now, the reason why I believe he took that route is because he would have known. And, and it says in the probable cause that they suspected that he would have traveled directly from Moscow to Pullman down that back road. Um, that comes off of uh, Palouse Road. And I wondered, why would they put that in there? Because we know he didn't go there. His phone turns on 10 miles south. I don't understand why they would put that in the probable cause after. You know? uh, and so I was like, all right, that's that's confusing. I was like, why would they put that there? And in my opinion, I think they put that there because that's an indication of when law enforcement would have been looking at cameras um, uh, for vehicles entering Pullman from Moscow. And so he took this long ass trip that took over an hour mm -hmm. because that police wouldn't be looking for a car coming into Pullman an hour after the incident. He knows how they're going to investigate him. I don't think it's a surprise that he turns his phone oh. off 10 miles away from the victim's residence and turns it back on 10 miles away in the opposite direction. I don't think that's right. a coincidence. I no, think that, you know, he didn't get offered the position in, in Pullman as the intern police officer. And then his second time around in the fall, he writes how he wants to help rural law enforcement agencies better collect technological data and cloud and forensic information. Basically saying, I'm here to help you backwoods law enforcement officers figure out how to use technology. Right. So why would he be so upset? It's, probably because he didn't get picked the first time. And I think that he probably him taking his phone was a way of saying, I'm going to take my phone and turn it off precisely when it needs to be turned off and turn it on precisely because I'm not, I'm going to outsmart you. And that's one of the characteristics that we've heard about him was that he wanted to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. There's been a lot of people who said that. Now for me, what I think he's doing is he's picking up his tools that he used to plan this crime. And I think he left everything here. Now, one of the things uh, that Steve says- like an Israel Keys had a little bag ready to go? Yeah. I think he had a bag ready to go and I think he had it here this entire time. In the building? Up until this night, yeah. Or in that area. Wouldn't you don't wanna take that back to his him? house. No, 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 no. This place here is for anybody. And he would have keys to it because he's a student employee or TA or whatever. And it wouldn't be and monitored. No login, no logout, no cameras. Yeah, nothing. It's free for everybody. So anybody could go in there. He could, he didn't even necessarily have to go into the building to be honest, but he could probably just park outside of it and use their Wi-Fi, Right. And anybody who's a student teacher, say whatever would have access to that Wi-Fi. 
And so it wouldn't necessarily come back to him. Now, one thing that Steve had mentioned saying that his phone may have touched the Wi-Fi or whatever at that house. Mm-hmm. I think that he would have um, possibly been aware that if he would have taken things like, let's just say, a burner phone or a burner tablet to his apartment, that there's a good chance that that device is going to want to connect with his Wi-Fi. And that could bust his ass if that ever is found because it's connecting to his IP address, his phone, his stuff. So I think he kept everything separate. Right. And I think he kept it here. And I think there's there's no surprise that there's nothing found on his phone, on his tablets or any of those things of stalking or any of those things, because, you know, he even put it in his essay that that was his expertise was cloud forensics and better technical like understanding technical data. Right. That's what his expertise was. So, you know, as much as people say, oh, he's stupid enough to leave the sheath and that and the third, I don't think he's dumb enough, you know, and that's because that's not in the preparation. I think that's in the right moment in the moment. Right. Having a burner phone or whatever the the case may be is part of the preparation. Now, if the optimum goal is to commit this crime, he wouldn't need the laptop anymore or the notebooks or whatever he used to plan this crime. So my thoughts are he picked up whatever it was that he used and he took it with him uh, to the crime because his intent was after he left, he was going to dispose of not just the weapon, his clothes, his shoes, but also the the tools that he used to plan this crime as well. Where do you think he went between 530 and 830 when he disconnected from the network on the evening of the 13th? Uh, I think first and foremost, he went back somewhere in between. Uh, the victim's residence and where his phone turned on. Reason being is at 420, he's seen traveling at a high speed, high rate of speed mm-hmm. off of Walenta Drive. His phone turns back onto the network on 95 near Blaine. You know, to go from the victim's residence to Blaine, Idaho is 10 minutes. So to be on the highway is probably a little bit quicker, maybe seven minutes traveling at a high rate of speed, maybe six. But it took him 28 Right. So I think that he had something somewhere predestined over here, went over there, picked it up, and he may have had several different times. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a hole dug somewhere over here or a canister or a box or whatever, something to you know hide whatever he's, you know, all of the tools. And then he had another place somewhere in these mountains over here, uh, you know, ready for the next day when he goes back pick up the tools of the crime and then take them to a more secluded, further location. Those are my thoughts behind what what he was doing and why it took so long as well versus the 28 minutes. Um, You know, I I strongly suspect that it was, it was BK. Uh, Can I say he's guilty 100%? Not yet. Nobody should, you know, and I see a lot of people who say that is, well, I couldn't convict him and sentence him to death based on what we know so far. You shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody should. Right now, the, the PCH, just words on a piece of paper, trial is the time where they produce the evidence. They prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, so nobody should be at that point. He is innocent until proven guilty. But acknowledging that there's evidence pointing to him is not synonymous with he's guilty, you know. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So we have a uh, 49.99 uh, super chat from Anna P. She's saying, I was wondering if BF's exonerating testimony could be 
uh, her placing someone else at the scene and only that doesn't sit well with the lack of DNA at the house. Nobody clothes, gloves found. Uh, I hope prosecution can answer these. So um, it doesn't sound like, to be honest with you, it doesn't sound like Brian Koberger and his defense team know for sure that one of the state witnesses have exonerating testimony. Mm-hmm. If they did, I think they would have been using them as as a witness for themselves, not just somebody that they plan on cross examining or cross um, you know talking with. And mm-hmm. so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, as far as them placing somebody else at the scene, I think that's the hope that they can during that cross examination and uh, get somebody to slip, maybe say something to the effect like, oh, I recognize the voice or something like that. But, you know, hearing somebody's voice and thinking you heard something, I mean, police think that Dylan heard Xana say, I think someone's here. And Dylan thinks that she heard Kaylee say it. So mm-hmm. that can kind of tell you, you know, somebody who knows you know, that's their roommate. They live with that person. And it sounds like there's at least a little bit of confusion as to who they heard. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much validity you can put on somebody hearing somebody else's words when they were tired and possibly under the influence of alcohol. Right. Um, but so this is the street that um, they suspect Brian Koberger would have exited. And um, this is Palouse Drive, which connects directly to Pullman, Washington, this back road, which okay. would have put him back into town like uh, before five o'clock. But he's there after five twenty-six. So, right. and so I was just looking to where his office, like address, was too, while we were talking. Because mm-hmm. I find that interesting. Well, I think his office was somewhere else, but I think he had access to the Office of Academic Engagement. If if that was him, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't uh, be looking for Brian, you know, I wouldn't be, if I was committing a crime like this, I wouldn't be um, planning it at my office either, off of my office Wi-Fi. I would be going to a place where I know that it was open to the public, where it could have been anybody that logged into that Wi-Fi. I want to know what cameras are in that area, you know, like that would be able to catch him. But I really like the idea and the theory that you put out because I always assumed over an hour drive back, it's because he was ditching something, right? Whether he dextered his car or he had his coveralls on or he was discarding something. And that is what is accounting for that additional time. But going in that deeper idea of, well, or he knew this is the amount of time that it would take for me to get back leaving that extra time when you wouldn't expect to see me get back. I never thought of it from that aspect. And that really is interesting to me. And and I really like that. Yeah. And when you, when you look at it from that perspective, it really does also kind of point towards coworker. You're looking at it from the perspective, like who, who we're talking about. We're talking about a guy who has a master's degree in, in criminology, one of only two students that was recommended through the PhD class or, or, or program criminology that must mean that he has some sort of intelligence right and understanding of criminal procedure and law procedure and investigating the crime and he would be highly aware of how an you know 
an officer or a detective would go about investigating this crime. You know, first you would look for vehicles that match the description and traveling in different areas and to locate, you know, which direction they're going in um, based on common, you know, uh, habit of, um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It's uh, uh, creatures of habit. You know, mm-hmm. typically when somebody commits a crime like this, there's a high sense of stress and anxiety and adrenaline that they're going to be going to one place pretty quickly. And, and he's aware of that. And that's why I never thought he was like Papa Rogers. He was no. never inside looking. Uh, he was never inserting himself into the case, especially after I also heard the fact that uh, based on his phone data that he never went back to Moscow. You know, one of the biggest telltales would have been that, hey, this person revisited the crime, revisited, you know, one of those things, relived it. And it doesn't appear that that was the case. And, you know, he's basically doing everything that you would not expect somebody that committed this crime to have done. And I think it's basically because of his his knowledge, his beforehand knowledge of how he would have been investigated throughout this entire thing. And, you know, for those that think that maybe because I thought this, too, and I was talking about this with Jaime, I was like, you know, maybe perhaps he planted something that would have pointed in a different direction than himself. He had mentioned mm-hmm. you know, he's going to be exonerated and things of that nature. I, I truly think that if this was Brian Koberger, that he was an he was a serial killer in the making. And if this was his first, first time, if this was his first, I do, I, I do based on it, you know how how fast he was losing his nerve, so to speak. You know, as soon as that DoorDash delivery was picked up, and it was go time. His driving became erratic. He was starting to lose control very quickly. And he hadn't even entered the house yet. And so that, that kind of tells me that, yeah, this, this was probably his first time. I think it and was so, his first also. Yeah. And so it being his first time, I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, how stupid is he of driving his own car, leaving the sheath? Um Doing, uh, you know, turning, taking his, um, taking his phone with him, not turning it off. But the thing is, at the end of the day, somebody drove a car out there. Somebody left the sheath behind. Why are we so surprised when police catch, catch a, catch a criminal who does so many stupid things? Well, and that's what I'm always like. If, if you want me to believe somebody else was involved, all right. Well, and just denied that there was anybody else in Brian's car. At least he was driving around alone for this window of time. If there is somebody else, all right, let's say there's another vehicle, right, which we would anticipate if somebody else was was involved. We're going to see that on the same footage that picks up suspect vehicle ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's on foot, the, the perp's on foot, you know, okay, then there were multiple cameras. So as of now, we don't know any of that to exist. So that's why I can't get behind someone else having involvement just because there's no evidence that points that that we know of currently. Right. And in reference to this building, as far as cameras, I know you had mentioned that mm-hmm. I didn't see any on the exterior of this building. doesn't mean that there isn't any in the interior. Right. I'd like to but, look into that more. Right. Around there, there isn't anything. Yeah. You know, there's no cameras now. There's other buildings that have cameras in this area. Um, and, and the thing is, I think that if there was a camera here and he ended up coming to this area, and this is why I also think that maybe there's a possibility uh, that he came to this area is because they don't say where he went. They only indicate that he traveled north and then traveled back and there's no cameras here. So there's a good possibility that this is the area he came in. 
um, this building here from WSU that's directly, you know, adjacent or across from um, Nevada Street. One, it has, you know, camera here from, mm, nice. you know, from there, and there are there are cameras, but they are facing down. Like there's this one facing down, and then on this side there's. Oh, where'd I go? <laughs> Went too far. I just think in a world right. full of cameras now, it's really bold to try to commit a crime and think you're going to get away with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you would think so. You would think so. But, I mean, you know, honestly, I think that if this guy didn't leave the sheath behind, they're not catching him. Really? Do you mm -hmm. think that they caught his license plate on camera even partially no nothing at all no i think that the fact that they had to do a genetic tree tells us that they weren't suspecting mm. him because they wouldn't need to do that if they suspected him they would have done what they did with the cigarette guy take his trash from somewhere you well, know even if they still suspected him would don't you think they they couldn't necessarily get his if he was taking all these precautions they couldn't get his dna to compare it to so do you not think that they would go about testing this dna alone without using his name because then people would say oh you built that case around brian even more than they do now versus we're taking the steps to source this dna all on its own separate from any license plate or anything like that no, because the standardized operation and procedure for the FBI to utilize the genetic tree is only if there is no leads. Oh, and okay. all law enforcement, you know, conventional tactics have been exhausted. So the fact that they did it leads me to believe that they had no leads whatsoever. If they had Brian Koberger, um, you know, they had a partial license plate, I think that would be enough to 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 look at him and they wouldn't have needed uh, any of the information that they had to get the warrants that they got for him and all that would have been done. But the biggest indication as well is um, if you suspected this man of being a quadruple homicide um, suspect, wouldn't you keep your eye on him? You would think so. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have issues with him even going back to work with students. The risk mm -hmm. was so high. Well, why would why would law enforcement be confused as if you know as to if the Eugene Oregon um, Elantra on December nineteenth was possibly Coburgers when he was in the Poconos if they had eyes on him? That's a great point. Because according to the Howard Bloom article, December nineteenth, Chief Fry has what they describe as a pregnant smile. Uh, he, you know, he calls in his chaplain. He calls in his. Uh, you know, lieutenant, and they tell he says, "Be ready and be prepared. We might have some news." According to the New York Times article, December nineteenth is the same day that the genetic tree is completed with the name Brian Koberger is given to the city of Moscow. Now, that vehicle that was crashed out there in, in Eugene, which in the Howard Bloom article indicates that that's why Chief was ecstatic. There was the vehicle in Eugene. December nineteenth um, is when I believe they. Moscow Police Department puts out a uh, press conference or a presser, I'm sorry, on their website that says that they're aware of the vehicle in Eugene. December 20th, they say that that vehicle is not involved. Now, how could they have cleared it so quickly without having gone out there? 
Well, I'm pretty sure they called the law enforcement agency there, asked for the VIN number when it came back to somebody else other than Brian Coburger. It wasn't their vehicle because they already had known it was Brian Coburger. But if they had, you know, they because of the genetic tree. But if they had known it was Brian Coburger prior to that, they would have known that on December 13th that he left to the Pocono Mountains and that that vehicle in Eugene was not his. So mm-hmm. the fact that they didn't know and they had to go find his license plate reader that his phone went through Colorado and then they had to find out that Indiana pulled him over twice and that he went back home to the Poconos. And that tells me that they had no idea that Brian Coburger was suspect number one. He wasn't until December 13th. I mean, December 19th, in my opinion. Do you think the stops were planned? No, not at all. You know, when you look at the uh, the demeanor of those um, officers when they approached the vehicle, it wasn't one that you would suspect be from an officer who knows that that is a quadruple homicide suspect. You don't walk up and just kind of nonchalantly lean into the car with your hands, you know, not at your, at least at your gun side. You know, um, and if if other agencies didn't tell you, like, for instance, if I was that officer and somebody said, hey, pull this vehicle over, I just want to see who's driving it. And then I find out later that that was a quadruple homicide suspect, that he doesn't know that the reason you're stopping him is just to check him out. To to Brian Koberger, if he did commit this crime and he's getting pulled over, he's getting pulled over because they've caught him. Right? right. You don't know how he's going to react. Right. And so. You know, you could be going into a situation where this guy turns around, doesn't want to go to jail, maybe has a weapon on him, and you just set an officer to go get ambushed. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, you know, there is such a thing as professional, like, courtesy. And I I don't foresee a law enforcement agency not informing another law enforcement agency that the person they're going to knock down is a quadruple homicide suspect. It just does not make sense to me. And their demeanor doesn't make sense. It doesn't imply that they knew either. So just complete coincidence that twice he was pulled over like that. Well, he, apparently he likes to, he, he gets pulled over quite a bit. That's true. In that short period of time, he did. You know, he, it's it's a knack that he has is getting pulled over. So, it's <laughs> funny. You would think, and thank you, Patty Nielsen, for your uh, five dollars super chat. I we appreciate that. Um, but we're over. We're past the 10 p.m. hour. It's usually a little bit longer than what we go. Do you have you guys have any questions for me? Mm. Go ahead, Chai. Do you have anything? Well, so after this alibi stuff came out, where do you think this leads? Um, next, like, where do you think that? Where do you think the roads lead to next in the hearing? The firing squad. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's a weak alibi. It's a weak alibi. But I think that's the only alibi that you can give. Because if he were to say, you know, I was driving around and I went through Coeur d'Alene. Well, Coeur d'Alene has um, cameras, right? There would be images of him traveling through or through town or something like that. And if he says, hey, I drove through Coeur d'Alene. You know, after, you know, I left my house at some point, it doesn't matter at what point of the night, just at some point. Well, law enforcement will go back and look at from the hours of two, probably two thirty before he left to about five, six o'clock, 30 minutes after he got home to see if there's a white vehicle without a front license plate that matches the description of Brian Coburg's vehicle entering Coeur d'Alene at any point. And if mm-hmm. it doesn't, then he's lying about his alibi and his whereabouts. And so if 
his true whereabouts was, you know, 1122 King Road, he's not going to be able to say anything because I'm fairly positive there's going to be some sort of evidence of him traveling to those areas, which is why he left it so vague. Yeah, I guess my what I have a hard time with is like, given the alibi and that thing, like he was nowhere near the area, then I'm stuck with, then how did his DNA get on the sheep inside the house? Because I know that people can argue a case of your DNA being all around a house, but inside where the crime scene is, is extremely rare. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I feel like the back, they're, the back's against the wall on this at this point, from what I can tell of the, that we've been provided information. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the defense, I mean, if they're using freaking case law from 1887 and they're trying to say that Brian Kilberger was alone that night, I mean, this thing's th- kind of stacking up in one way. You know, they're throwing mud. That's what it looks like. It looks like to me that the defense is just throwing mud and hoping something sticks. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I'm waiting for trial to to get my full conclusion on my opinion on it. But mm-hmm. I, like I said, I feel very strongly that this person has committed this crime. Just like it's not as strong as like Rex Huerman. Like, I, I'm not afraid to say that guy hasn't gone to jail. And I'll say that I think that that dude's like 100 percent guilty of a lot of crap. Especially three of those crimes that he's being committed, you know, accused of. I don't know about all 12 of the victims or any of those things, but the ones that have his DNA or his wife's DNA involved in it, I do. I do. I strongly believe that that's the case, which is why I, I often question is like, you know, if I feel so strongly of his guilt, do I really think he's going to get a fair trial? I don't know. You know, but that's the mm-hmm. that's the double edged sword you, you play with. Um, yeah. What else? What else do you got? Your turn, MJ. <laughs> oh, I've got a million questions, but I'm just trying to prioritize them. Um, if it comes out that this is the single source of male DNA in the sheath is the only, only DNA that they have of Brian's at that home or the none of the victims in anything of Brian's, do you think that's going to be enough along with? the the car let's say that they prove that that suspect vehicle one they can't prove that he entered the house other than the dna on the sheath but they can prove that's his vehicle and the maneuvers and then the phone disconnecting from the network do you think basically if if everything we have now is what we have will it be enough to convict him no there's so much people out there that think that he's innocent based on the information that is out there now Mm -hmm. i think that in a jury of 12 you're going to find at least one person uh, that's going to look at this from that perspective and not be comfortable with it. I think there has to be more than than what they have. And I think that, you know, law enforcement was banking on it. When you look at the search warrants and you look at the wording behind them, you know, planning, meticulous planning was involved. Um, things of that nature uh, are being said, you know, they're expecting to find um, planning of routes, pictures of interior of the house, things like that, because they felt that this 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 crime was well-planned and orchestrated, you know, I feel like there should be something else there. Now, like I said before, you know, I think that this guy gets away with this if it's not for that sheath, you know, um, I think it's going to be hard to prosecute him if there's nothing else. I really do. And, and, And like I said, there's so many people that are out there right now that think he's possibly innocent or somebody else is involved or it's not strong enough to, 
put him to death. Uh, I, I think there, there, there's a world where a juror can find this man uh, not guilty. Hmm. I got stressed thinking about it. You know, I really the PCA is only supposed to be a very small portion of what they have. So I'm really curious to find out everything. And I really hope cast comes through. I'd like to educate myself a little bit more because I know that they're able to triangulate and figure out within feet of where a phone is. We've seen it with Alex Cox and the, with the Vallow case, they were able to determine exactly where those children were buried based on Alex Cox phone pings. But what I'm curious to know is, could they determine that if a phone is disconnected from the network? Are they able to figure out precisely where it was? So I'm curious to know about that. I'll say this. I, I highly doubt it because if it was, I mean, putting Brian Koberger at the scene would be huge. That would definitely be at the probable cause affidavit that he was there at the scene. That's why I said that if he was the door dasher or ordered the door dash, that puts him on the scene. And that would be massive, massive. I want to say thank you, uh, Doc Terry, for your 1999 super chat. Says great panel, thank you. Um, to me, what was your question again? I'm sorry, I got confused uh, or distracted. I don't or your last statement. You don't remember your last statement? Well, I got distracted with you, Shay. What was my question? <laughs> oh, I was curious about the cast if they could triangulate. So, um, the way the cast works, um, Christy actually, actually sent me an article. The way, the reason why it's precise is that it uses historical data, so it's not triangulation. It uses historical okay. data from the phone, and basically, what's going on is a signal is being sent to the phone from the tower. And what the cast does is it's able to determine the length of time it takes from that signal to get to the phone, then to get back to. Um, the tower, that plus triangulation and other things is what determines the precise location. And so in the probable cause affidavit, it states that Brian Kubler connected to a tower in Moscow, which I think is important. A lot of people are confusing that with him pinging or being located in Moscow. That's not what it says. It says that he connected to a tower in Moscow, but they don't believe that he was in there. And I think the reason why they don't believe that he was in Moscow is because they were able to determine uh, the length of time that it took from uh the signal to get from the tower to his phone and back was longer than it would have been had he been in Moscow. And it probably gave some kind of precise location somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes complete sense. You know, the, some of the things that are worded in this probable cause affidavit are just poorly written, but everything is in there. I'll, I'll say that everything's in there. You just sometimes, I mean, I've had to read it like six times to kind of understand some of it mm -hmm. because there's a, you know, after the first reading, I was like, why the hell is half of this even in here? And then the more I've dug into it and read it multiple times, I'm starting to figure out what they're trying to say. But to me, it was very much written like a copy and paste type of situation as it went along they were writing reports as they went along and they went back to their old reports and copied and pasted the pertinent information and maybe left some things that probably shouldn't even have been in there um, but they did and um you know, that's kind of the way i felt about this probable cause affidavit no that makes i i agree and with like ann taylor um because Amber had said it on her panel, because of the strict gag order, usually what you would anticipate in cases like this is seeing the defense lawyer speak out on behalf of their client, right? And start poking holes right along as we're leading up to trial. 
We don't have that in this circumstance because there's such a tight gag order. But Ann Taylor is kind of doing exactly that, just speaking through the motions, right? She's creating that reasonable doubt and she's she's using those very interesting word choices like the sheath was placed. Like everybody ran with that's planted. That's not what she said. Place can be true even if it was Brian, right? Um, And the unknown sources of, of male DNA. Like very you know, total lack of DNA. And so she's still kind of controlling the narrative through these documents, you know, and and that's really Mm -hmm. interesting. And that's what she's supposed to do. And I just wish people would realize because people are like, well, she can't lie. I'm not saying she's lying, but she's being very wise with how she chooses to say things. And they could be true. They could be, you know, they have little loopholes that they could go through where, Total lack of DNA, again, is that synonymous synonymous with absolutely none or is lacking insufficient? Because that's what the definition is of lacking. Um, but it's that total that people get hung up on. And I, I really don't know if it means none whatsoever. Um, but that could mean as far as she knows with what she was given at the time that the document was written or something like that. So, But it does seem like she is speaking to the public through these motions. Oh, she definitely is. There's a clear example of it. And it talks about the fact that you you brought it up, the undisclosed or unidentified uh, DNA. Well, if you read that um, document, it says as of December 17th, that there was unidentified DNA in that, mm-hmm. in that in, around where the bodies were. As of December 17th, Brian Colbert's DNA on the sheath was also unidentified. So I think it's a play on words. Because it wasn't until December 19th, you know, it wasn't until December 19th that they found it. So December 17th, they didn't know who Brian Koberger was either. So there's there's no indication and we're not going to find out, not now at least, how far or how extensive other suspects were investigated. Now, we know other suspects were investigated because law enforcement here took a cigarette bud secretly. So somebody else was investigated. Yeah. Now, if you look at the Ronald, I mean, uh, uh, Richard, Lo- uh, Richard Allen case, we know that Ronald Logan was heavily suspected. We know that Tony Klein was heavily suspected. Neither one of those guys come out in the paperwork that we're privileged to see. But I guarantee you, I know where it's at. It's a discovery. But we're not privileged to the discovery. And I guarantee you, those suspect information and stuff like that is within that 51 terabytes of discovery that the prosecution has handed over to the defense here as well. And Absolutely. so... We're just not privileged to it. And uh, some folks are running with that as because we don't know that it doesn't exist. And that's not true. Right. 100%. Very much agree. And so, like, yeah, I've, 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 I've gone through this case back and forth quite a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know the ins and outs of it very well. So uh, when it okay. comes, like, when I read all these things about it, and I, and I read the tactics that they're using. There's a lot of it. But I think it's starting to backfire because it's starting to get thin. You know, when you're starting to go down, you know, 1887 code and, you know, co alibi, things like that. Like I said, it really does look like mud's being thrown at the wall at this point. It, yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. I mean, I honestly, I mean, I hope that we get to the point where you know, it's apparent that they've exhausted all tips, you know, there's no any, there's no room open for 
discussion that somebody wasn't investigated properly, that they have their right guy. Because, I mean, I don't think any of us want, you know, somebody to be, have a wrongful conviction. But, you know, uh, most importantly, I want justice for the victims. And I feel like that's what's getting lost in some of this is, is the justice for the victims. 100%. You know, a lot of people will look at the fact that, like, so many cases go unsolved. And confuse that with possibility that the police got this wrong. You know, they'll look at the percentage of things like, oh, yeah, like 50% of murder cases don't get solved. That doesn't mean that those that do, you know, those people are wrongly convicted. It's, it's even smaller amount. Does it happen? Yes. Yep. Are there are there bad officers just like there's bad everything else in this world? Yeah, yeah. obviously. Nobody's perfect. Everybody, you know, no system is perfect. The judicial system isn't perfect. And so, you know, but... I would I would tend to believe that the judicial system from the United States of America is probably the most trust trustworthy ish. <laughs> maybe not recently, you know, the higher up you go, the higher in position certain people are, and maybe the law doesn't acquire or, or have the same effect. But um for the most part, I would feel like on everyday normal persons that the judicial system is probably the most fairest that is out there, you know, in the world. You know, like I said, there's no perfect system. But in this scenario, I, I just don't see the I just don't see how things can happen. Even if. All right. Let's just say that something like they say that they were going to plant something. Right. In order for this to be a frame, officers would have had to have known that Brian Koberger was going to be out that night, have his phone out that night and have a sheath with his DNA ready to go the next morning when this thing happened. I mean, in order for all that to happen, the officers would have had to have been involved, which I'm not even going to start that rumor. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Even if it was like, all right, law enforcement needed to come up with some sort of, you know, fall guy. Brian Koberger is probably the worst fall guy you can go after. Mm -hmm. Like. Well you're right. And I say that all the time because people are like, all right, his DNA could have gotten that sheath prior to the murders. And I think there's a good chance it did. I think it may have gotten on there before he ever went to the house. Right. But people are like, you know, like he could have touched it at a garage sale. And it's like, okay, if, if you want to think that that DNA got there, then his car shouldn't be there. His phone shouldn't be doing these things that are perfectly in sync with the time of the murders, right? That's why you got to look at everything collectively. It's when you look at everything combined that it really paints a bigger picture. But people are like, oh, he went for a drive at night. I didn't know going for a drive at night meant that you'd committed a quadruple homicide. Well, it doesn't, you know. Well, he could have touched the, the sheath at a garage sale. That's not good enough. Oh, well, he may have shut off his, off his phone because it died. Listen, they'll be able to determine if it was a conscious decision a deci uh, to disconnect from the network or if it, you know, like happened to die or out of service range. They'll be able to determine that. But when you put them all together, it paints a big picture. But people argue a lot, each one independently. Oh, 100 percent. I can't stand that. I'm, I've asked multiple times for a creator or anybody to put out the entire story of what they think that Brian Kubrick was doing that night that shows that he's innocent. And in that story be believable. I haven't seen it yet, but let's look at the phone um, turning off at two forty something and then returning back onto the network at four forty eight. Sure. What is a logical reasoning? If you were Brian Kubrick's defense team as an explanation for that. And then I'll try to argue that as a prosecutor as pretending to be the prosecution. Uh, are we acknowledging he's on the road and on the move? He's already acknowledged that. 
Okay. Touche. Okay. Um, hmm. Well, if you were going for the defense, well, the entire point I'm going for a ride is to distract my mind, to get away. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I manually shut my phone off because I'm trying to disconnect. I'm trying to just get out of my own head. Um, but that's why it's like, they'll be able to determine whether it was a conscious thing or you could turn around and say that I lost service. I have no idea what you're talking about. Neither is a good defense, but I don't see many options that they have. So if the, if the defense was that he turned it off to clear his mind, what would be the reasoning that you think that he turns it on at 448? Is it because he's lost? Well, I was about to say, it depends on where he was on the map. Could he pull off that he was lost? Could he pull off that he wanted to check in and make sure that there was no family emergencies or anything like that? It's not good to leave it off for an extended period of time. <sighs> There's so many factors. <laughs> so for me, if, if he got lost, the reason that doesn't make sense is because he doesn't go back home you know, the faster way or, you know, the traditional way. He goes this weird ass loop that I don't think any GPS is going to tell him to go. Well, if it was a weird ass loop, maybe he could pull it off. Like, I don't know, man, I keep going around this damn loop. I needed to turn it on to use my GPS. But all of that would be proven, right? When you right. What, what I'm saying off, is if you turn on your GPS right now, right, you're, you're lost. You've been out there for two and a half hours already. At this point, you turn on your phone, you're near Blaine, Idaho. I give him the benefit of the doubt. It's dark. It's rural area. No light pollution. Everything looks the same. All right. You turn on your phone. Your phone tells you, all right, Brian, turn around and go back towards Moscow and then cut back over here off of 270 and you'll be home in about 30 minutes. I don't think there's a, you know, map or Google or whatever is going to say, all right, Brian, Let's head south further towards Genesee and then let's head towards Unionton and then go up towards Pullman and get there at 530. I don't think that that's even a route that's recommended Probably. because of how out of the way it is. Mm-hmm. So that so, would be the best defense. Right. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, you know, if he tried to say that. And the other thing is, if you try to say, all right, I lost signal. I don't think that losing signal in the city where signals probably the strongest yep. makes sense, but yet it comes back after going through possibly Moscow. I don't know how you can get to this area without going through Moscow, but let's just say there is either way. He ends up over here in this rural area where signals probably not that strong, but that's where it comes back. That doesn't make sense for me either. The only way you could pull it off is they'll be able to determine, like I said, if it was a conscious decision to manually disconnect from the network. And the only thing you could do is turn around and say, I was disconnecting, period. The entire point I'm going for a drive is because I have a lot of my mind. And after a period of time, yeah, I'm going to turn that on and I'm going to check in. God forbid there's an emergency or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's the only thing I could see. Because what what defense can you think? And that's why it's so important to establish a pattern of behavior, though, because in this alibi document, it's saying that it wasn't unusual for Brian to go for these long drives at night. They're already accounting for those 12 times he would have been in that same area and they're trying to jump ahead and control that narrative. But was it unusual for his phone to disconnect from the network? Because if you're going to claim that, you know, oh, I'm doing this, you know, clear my head. Well, then why wouldn't any of the other 12 times prior, 
was your phone disconnecting? Now we don't know if it, maybe it did. I don't know, you know, like, but that's why a pattern of behavior is so important to show how this night was unique compared to all the other nights. 100%. Now, I would strongly suspect that prior to the incident that the phone wasn't being off. The reason being is that the phone wasn't off when he was um, apparently doing his stalking. So I wouldn't think that his phone would be off in these areas. And if it is, it comes back that it is. Do you think that that's a problem? If his phone is determined to have been manually shut off during those no, times? No, it, that there is a habit of him turning it off throughout certain parts of the day for let's just say it's a two-week period all of a sudden you know for the last two weeks you know uh, at least five different occasions he's gone on a long drive and, and the phone's been turned off if it was the two weeks prior to the murders leading up not so much because i'm sure they're gonna go with premeditation but mm -hmm. if it was something over the, the course of months i think that could pose an issue yeah now, <clears throat> the other thing is that we don't know is outside of the second time that Brian Koberger was out there on the 13th, I believe, uh, where he's also seen, you know, getting a cup of coffee and then he's in an Albertson. It, I don't think there's anything that indicates that he ever did that again. Exactly. If it was so, so normal, why did he stop? Why didn't he return back? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't seem like. He never he, he stopped going to Moscow for the next month in a place that all indications showed up until the, the crime he was visiting quite often. So I think that that's a change of behavior is if he was visiting Moscow often and then the last time that he goes out there is the morning prior to the bodies being discovered or prior to 911 being called. I think that's a change of behavior of him stopping. Well, I'd even like to point something out that when you're talking about the phone stopping, you know, joining to the network, if somebody wants a break from something, I don't know what kind of phone he had, but like for an iPhone, like specifically, I wouldn't even have to put it in airplane mode. I could just put it in do not disturb or some kind of special mm. focus mode. So those are just other things that I was thinking of as well. And if he was needing the phone to perhaps navigate himself back, then they would be able to tell that through the maps data. Also, if and when like his phone stopped reporting to the network, what power of uh, level of power his battery was on. So, I mean, even if the chances that his phone died, that might even be rolled out quickly too. We just don't know yet. That's true. That's true. You know, if, if he has an iPhone, I think they're gonna be able to determine the life of his battery uh, based on the timing of when this mm -hmm. phone went off. Mm -hmm. So that's going to definitely be an indicator in my opinion as well. And I think the card just stacked up against Koberger, to be honest with you. You know, I know that he uh, came out saying that he's looking forward to being exonerated. I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, you know, I think that um, I think justice is going to be served and it'll be swift in this case. Uh, I, I don't think this I really don't. I don't, you know, unless they don't find anything else. Like if the probable cause affidavit is the only thing that we have, then yeah, that's going to be a big issue. But if he committed this crime, I find it very difficult that they find zero evidence after his arrest. I think they're going to have much more than we realize. I think that people are underestimating uh, 
just how many expert witnesses are going to get up there and how many people are going to testify and how down to the science they're going to have this. But at the same time, I think that defense is going to pull something out that's going to shock all of us. And it doesn't necessarily have to exonerate Brian. I think it's always going to be Brian, but it's going to be something enough for us to be like, <gasps> and looking in an, another direction. I just don't know what it is. Well, Brian Koberger had mentioned that he had thought this was a crime of passion early on in this investigation. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a narrative that they continue to go with. You know, given the fact that it was rumored that Kaylee had, you know, majority of the, uh, the you know, the severe wounds. Um, to my understanding, she was the one that was out of a recent relationship. You know, that night she was at the corner club with her ex-boyfriend. They were on the phone that entire night. He lives literally a couple of blocks away. Uh, during their time that they had broken up, she went on a date with another person. Um, you know, she was leaving and uh, moving away was with this guy since he was 15 years old and you know her first love and because she's moving away she decides that she can't date him anymore but can date other guys i think you know i think the product the defense is going to look at that situation and try to build some sort of of um defense for brian koberger and saying you know a knife is a very personal weapon that's something that you know you would assume somebody that had a lot of feelings and emotional ties to this case would have used. And so, you know, I think that could be what an angle that they're going to go with. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't necessarily think, I, I honestly truly don't think that Jack is involved. I, I felt that if he was given, you know, if, if it was him and it was a crime of passion, those things aren't planned out very well. You know, those things are very emotional, you know, crime of passion type of cases and tons of evidence are left behind. And, um, and usually uh, people are caught with those type of crimes. The fact that it went so long that it did told me that it wasn't gonna be that situation here. I always say be prepared for the unexpected. Like I watched all of the Murdoch trial and I was floored when they had the Snapchat video of Busters. Um, I, I was floored when they had the GM um, auto tech there discussing like everything with the car. Like you, I think we're, well, we got to be open-minded. Um, but you know, if it isn't Brian, of course, I don't want him on, you know, up there facing this, but as far as I know, the, it seems plausible from the PCA and I'm really curious what comes back from some of those social media warrants. Cause that tends to be like a real heavy hitter and right. how much we've seen pulled and sealed. Yeah, oh, you're right. You're right. So I got one last question for you guys, and then we're going to call it a show. Uh, my question is, if you were the prosecutor and the defense team came forward and said that they're willing to plea out uh, in exchange for the motive, the why, a trial similar to BTK where he gave all of the details as to the crime, uh, would you take that deal to take the death penalty off in exchange for the motive and why? We'll start off with you, Moose. It would be solely based on what the families wanted. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good question. That's a good answer. Yeah, it, it would be, see, like with um, the Watts case, 
the rejects wanted. Uh, death penalty off, you know, like, let him take the deal, plea out. Like, they didn't... Hmm. Yeah, it would It would be It would be the family. Whatever would bring them the most form of closure. If, if, if getting the answers in exchange for the plea... Because I'm a big person on answers. I think that you can't really rest in peace or get justice until you know what truly happened. So if someone would be, but you also have to put that level of trust in that what they're telling you is accurate, you know, but it would be yeah, based on what the family would want. What about you, Shay? You know, and let's just say that the family was split and it was your decision. Mm. Oh, he threw you a curveball. <laughs> Um, you say like there's has, there's a plea with this or yeah the the deal is you either go to trial and there's a possibility that he gets off on this or you know but if found guilty there's a good chance he's gonna face the full full justice or take a plea and he gives you the motive tells you why and all the details similar to BTK in his trial. Uh, where everything was disclosed. Uh, that's tough. Mm -hmm. I don't... Uh, so if you plead, would it be like a normal plea or like an Alfred plea where you say there's enough evidence against me? Because that's also kind of what sticks in my mind. And they don't serve near as long in prison. No, nah, he's the. It is life without parole. Life without parole. Yeah, he's the only thing getting taken off is his life. Um, I'd say that's fine, but no, no appeals to that. Like, I think there has to be conditions. One hundred percent. So one hundred percent. I mean, I wouldn't like enforce the death penalty if he's going to plea, but I'd say no appeals to it and it sticks. You know, I think the one of the reasons and I understand that appeals happen in a death penalty case as well. But I think that, you know, for some people, their belief is an eye for an eye. And that's where they feel like true justice is served. And I'm not going to lie, I feel that in many situations, you know. But when you have multiple families involved and they may have different um, mor a morality, like a different morality perspective around it, I would probably go for the lesser and not put the death penalty on there and just do life without parole. Yeah. I feel so, like that uh, would probably be most respectable at that time, you know? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think I'm in the same boat. I think, you know, obviously I'd ask the victims and if the victims came forward and said, you know, Daniel, uh, uh, two families were like, yeah, we want to do it. Two families say, no, we want an eye for an eye. You know, depending on the strength of the case as well, because some justice is better than no justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, those things are all taken into consideration. You know, the hard part is like saying, hey, man, we got this guy dead to rights. There's no way he's going to win this case. You know, now it's like we either go for his life or we give him the option of living the li his rest of his life in, in jail. And we know, at least in part, because who's to say what he's saying is honest, too? You know, we get some sort of story coming from um, the suspect. And so, you know, it, it's a very difficult decision. But, you know, I think that's one that 
should be carefully considered, in my opinion, if it gets to that point or if it comes down to he gets found guilty and they want to, you know, do the, uh, um, you know, let's just say he's found guilty and at time of sentencing he comes up with saying, hey, I'm willing to do this if you take that off. You know, I think that that's something to discuss at that point. Uh, we have a couple of super chats real quick. Eric Schultz coming with a $5 super chat saying, thank you, Blue, Daniel, and Jaime, great guest, and all in chat. And then we have True Crime Cafe with Diego coming with a $2 super chat as well, saying great chat as well. Um, perfect, perfect. For some reason, um, StreamYard's not working or I'd pull them up, y'all. I apologize for all the problems we've had. Uh, for those uh, who aren't aware or don't know, I'm sure many of you guys, hold on, stop sharing and then my stream yard is acting up so yeah it's frozen for me it's been frozen this entire time yeah, yeah. so I this is uh, my computer because mine was messing up yeah it's, it's it's horrible so this is uh melissa jade's youtube channel she has 7.4k subs let's get her up to 7.5 not to 8k uh, links are in the description do y'all have any final words before we let everybody go no, just thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I appreciate hearing your feedback, your experience, your theories. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you, Shay? And ditto. I do appreciate talking with you guys. It's always um, enjoyable. And mm -hmm. I I love to theorize and go based in fact. But I also like my conspiracy side, too. So this has been an interesting case. And I appreciate the chat for being kind as well. 100%. Thank you, guys. Thank you, mods, for being awesome in there. Thank you, uh, anybody that has, um, you know, Super Chatter donated or, you know, um, supported the channel, like, commented, and subscribed. Thank you, guys. I'm going to leave you guys, if you guys don't mind waiting, I do have a little commercial at the end that we show, uh, but afterwards, I'll continue to talk after the show is over. So, for everybody else, here's the uh, raffle information that we have going on. This is our little Frenchie Nelson. Nelson was the runt of his uh, litter. And unfortunately, he is diagnosed with IVDD, which resulted in him losing the ability to move his rear legs. Now, we were left with a couple of options, one being put Nelson down or two, go through a costly uh, surgery, which wasn't guaranteed to work. We gave Nelson that chance and we went through the surgery. And fortunately, today he can walk and you know, he's not 100%, but he's getting there you know, through rehab and continual rehab. We think he may. Those bills are extensive and continuous. In efforts to lower that financial strain, we've decided to do a raffle. This raffle is going to be of a four by three handmade quilt. This quilt was actually made by my mother-in-law. And so high quality, I uh, think you'll love it. It's a rescue themed quilt. So how do you enter? There is a $5 entry to get into the raffle. All entries will be through Cash App, dollar sign, Drunk Turkey Show to enter. In the description, make sure you put your shipping address and your name. If you want to put in multiple, you can do so. You can send in, for instance, 25 and also put in the description five entries. The raffle will be on August 28th. The winner will be chosen at random by a uh, wheel selector. Don't need to be present on the live. Good luck. Thank you.